you had a background in cowboy action shooting. Yes. Did you have a nickname? Yeah, uh, my alias was Handlebar Doc. <laughs> Welcome to the Trigonometry Show, the show for practical shooters. Pistol, shotgun or rifle, bolt or semi-auto. If it has a trigger, we probably enjoy shooting and talking about them. I'm your host, Kerry, and this show features regular guests talking about competitions and courses, reloading and unloading, tips, tricks and reviews, all focused around practical shooting in New Zealand. Many thanks to all our supporters and sponsors that help the show exist, but an extra special thanks to The Gear Locker, where you can find long-range shooting and reloading accessories that you won't find anywhere else in New Zealand. Check them out at gearlocker.nz and make sure you tell them that we sent you. So it's a weird story. So back then, uh, at that point in my life, I was, I was actually cowboying full time. Uh, we, we had a, a ranch that we leased and a, a farm. And that was what I kind of did every day. And so I had a big handlebar mustache, uh, Texas cowboy thing. So went from that into the long range, or not, went from that into the cowboy action shooting. Uh, and everybody assumed that's where I took the name from was my handlebar mustache. But in reality, Handlebar Doc is a uh, the only world champion uh, son of Doc Bar, which was a quarter horse that revolutionized the quarter horse industry. And at that time, I had a own son of Handlebar Doc that we sure. used as a stud breeding our mares, and we had Handlebar Doc mares. So it was taken more from the the horse side yeah. than than the Handlebar mustache. But most people don't know that. But it's okay. <laughs> Let them think what they want. I it's can fine. see how it would be a quick association. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, that was the thing. I, I, to be blunt, between you and Sam Elliott, it would probably be half the inspiration <laughs> for the way I grow my beard in my because it was just like, hey, that's, if yep. you're going to do it, yep, yep. let's actually do it. Um, one thing, which just to clarify as well, is like you haven't had a, a, a huge military background as such compared to... No, I've so had zero. Zero, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. But you got into it essentially through competition which led to your work with Horace and then uh, with the military contacting you to do training. Yes, correct. So how, uh, I guess having not done it, I mean how have you found it's been different basically with the, I guess a civilian background rather than a military background now for your training of the military? Yeah. Is it a bonus? Is it a it, it's, a hu- no, it's a huge bonus uh, from, from what the military guys have told me, uh, they said I would never would have had access to uh, the groups that I have now uh, if I would have been former military. Oh, okay. Because if it, they, from what they tell me, if I would have been former retired, uh, any branch, whether it was SEAL, Marine, uh, Ranger, anything. So they said that you know, if I would have been SEAL, every SEAL would have thought, well, he went to the same school I went to, so what does he know that I don't know? Yeah. So it had been real hard, and it had been really hard to go in and train uh, the Special Forces world being from the Navy because they're not going to listen to the Navy. Yeah. So actually it's a huge bonus that I was not in the military as far as having access to the military to do training uh, with them. I'm not having to beat down those, those hurdles uh, and show them that I may know something that they may want. Mm. Uh, 
So I, I think it's been a huge benefit. Uh, obviously, you still have to get your foot in the door. Yeah. And the foot in the door was was actually the competition. So once I, you know, started the competition stuff, the what we call the sniper competitions, and and they'd won enough of them that the uh, the companies like Horus asked me to do demos to the military. Uh, we went from there, and then the military asked me to come back and teach them how to use a product again. Sure. And so I went back and taught them how to use a product, and they said. Hey, you're you're not teaching us how to shoot, and I said, you know, I'm staying in my lane. And so, as a cowboy, you, you, etiquette-wise, you don't get out of your lane. You stay with whatever they ask you to teach. You don't talk outside what you're not supposed to. So uh, they they came back and they said you hadn't taught us how to shoot. So I said, nope, staying in my lane. You asked me to teach you how to do the reticle and the the ballistics, and so. They said, what would you change about the way we shoot? And so we started making a list and immediately they stopped me and said, okay, we want to hire you for a month. So like I said, I was ranching, farming at the time. So it was winter time. So I had a month uh, to give them. So I went in, uh, trained them. But prior to that, uh, one of the guys from recon Marine came out on the range while we were training that initial week. And they said, hey, we want you to come back in three weeks to do training with us. So I went and trained them. And then about a week or two after that, we went in and did the month training with a, a, a unit called Det One, which was a stand-up for MARSOC before they even knew what a MARSOC was. Uh, so it was kind of a the, the tier community of the Marine Corps at that time. And it, it was uh, a good uh, good relationship there. I worked all the way through Det One, through their total existence. Then uh, back into recon and force and and then all the way through that, and then Special Forces jumped in pretty quick, uh, and then obviously from there things went, you know, full blown. And I would figure as well, like you mentioned, you, you not having that military training, you were bringing something new that they probably hadn't already been going through and reteaching and reteaching and reteaching and reteaching. Yeah, and and the problem with uh, long range is scientific as it is, uh, we. You know, back in the day, the guys didn't have ballistic engines. We didn't have the computers. We made a lot of rules based on what we perceived was going on. Yeah. Uh, and it, I, I am of that generation because I'm 54 years old. So it's, uh, it, it's you, you kind of go back to where we were as far as technology and what, what kind of uh, options we had and what we thought was real and things that we decided was real and, and what we found out is a lot of that was not correct. So, uh, But it's, yeah, it's functional if it works, then it, the time it, it's... It, 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 it worked to a point mm. and that was a problem. Uh, and then we made excuses why it wasn't working uh, and, and started looking, but on the, on the backside, when we came back in and started doing the actual training and what, from my shooting competition days, I started testing everything to see what was real and what wasn't real. Yeah. By that time, we had ballistic engines. And so uh, we started really looking into the science of it. And then we started looking into what was taught in the military and, and what was actually wrong uh, with those teachings. And the problem with the military, uh, as far as the establishment and the teaching of the sniper schools, uh, you know, a lot of it was built out of Vietnam, 1970 era, and then we moved forward with that uh, as far as sniper involvement in their schoolhouses. Uh, but most of the time, like any military around the world, you have instructors that go in, they teach for two to three years, they bounce out, they're back on a sniper team or not, and you know, they may be, uh, they may go through sniper school, run as a sniper in a sniper team. Uh, for two years, maybe four years, and they roll back out, they may teach, uh, you know, a few of them may teach, and then they're out of the sniper community, community 
uh, because it kind of turns into a pro uh, career progression point yep. for the military. So they says, all right, you're good at that. No, you need to be good at something else and move on to something else. And so really a lot of the, the knowledge that they teach is the old knowledge and it's just yeah. retaught yeah. and it's not changed. So yeah. it needs to be a quick, easy handover package that a guy can pick up and teach without losing any uh, continuity. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it, it's really hard uh, to make the changes that needed to be made in, in the military and that's what we've been fighting for about 14 years since mm -hmm. I've been doing this full time. Uh, and you know we, we've had a lot of success with it. Uh, I would say in the States, but now it's actually become across the world. Uh, we've been in uh, Norway and Germany and Switzerland. Uh, we teach the Dutch, J Danes, uh, SBS, SAS, all the guys all over the world. Like I said, you know, Canada, uh, SSR, and two commandos. So really, it's it's really gotten towards deep into all the schoolhouses now as well. Yeah. So with with your traveling and teaching around the world, have you sort of noticed any major differences between? Um, you know, European style shooting, American style shooting, shooting down down southern hemisphere like that, or is it very consistent, or is no, there different approaches to it? No, I would say it's very consistent. Uh, a, a lot of, you know, as far as the styles we, that we shoot, and, and what's funny is. Uh, a lot of the things that we are doing wrong are doing wrong all over the world. So, uh, but there has been a, a quick progression and a willingness to to change and move to uh, a better way. And so, really, there's not been. I mean, there's always areas that you get pushed back, uh, but they're usually from people my age. So it, it's usually that gentleman that was uh, thought as of you know the the head guy in the community at that time and that that group and nobody likes to you know feel like they're losing uh face or or and it's really not i i've, I've worked it's two different types of personalities so uh i've had that individual that uh was always willing to grow and move and do more and so i can remember uh teaching at the navy special warfare school at atterbury and there was an old gentleman there that was a sniper in the marine corps and he's he's got to be near 70 years old and everybody assumed that he would not listen to me whatsoever and be anti everything I said. And I think initially uh, we had that tendency the first day in, in class, uh, but to his credit, by the end of the, either the end of the first day or the second day, uh, he was adamant about needing to change and you know, get on the right side and, and get, he, but he, he's been around long enough that he could see the yeah. need for it, and he, he he knew what we was teaching was right because it was working on the range. Yeah. He wasn't trying to uh, save his credentials. He was trying to make sure that the, the younger kids were, were getting the best that, mm -hmm. that we could give them. Uh, and huge uh, proponent for it. Mm -hmm. And so you see guys like him that are willing to grow, and we can't ever stop growing no matter where you think you are yeah. uh, in, in that chain. So. Somebody like him is a gold mine because even though he's 70 years old and, and could have said, yeah, we don't need it. That's not the style that we shoot. That's what not we what do we do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we hear that a lot. Yeah. And uh, you get those guys and it really progresses the system real fast and goes. And then you always get the guys like, no, uh, one power per hundred meters, 10 power scopes, thousand yards. That's all we need. You know, we don't need first focal plane. We don't need gritted reticles. We don't need ballistic computers. They take batteries. Don't and, need <laughs> oh yeah, you, use your rock. So it's it, it. You always run into those guys, yeah. but they're they will leave, 
Yeah. They'll, they'll move on. Sometimes it may take five years before we really can get back into that school and, and get that going. But like I said, we've been doing this 14 years, so we've outgrown most of those guys and, and things have moved around. Yeah, just patience. Just yeah, just keep doing what you do. <laughs> keep your head down, nose to the ground, mind your own business. Keep moving forward. Five years later, I'm back. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, you got, like I say, going back, you got into a lot of this via the competition. Is We talked about this earlier, but the competition, is is it something you're still able to be involved with much Oh, no, more? no. Just too, yeah. too busy? Yeah, or? absolutely too busy right now. So, and, and, and have been, uh, you know, the first year I think I did four classes. Uh, I was still ranching, farming at the time. The next year we had eight classes. The next year we had 16 classes. By the fourth year I was pretty much booked year round. Uh, and I always thought it'll slow down. You know, you know, once we get everybody kind of up to speed, you know, it, it, things will kind of drop off and it'll get something that's manageable and, and I can go back and shoot some competitions and play around. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can talk to my wife. It's not slowed down. So there was a period of time any there. Any year now. Yeah, no. Yeah, any year now. I think it's fixing to slow down. So, uh, but there was a period there for about five years. I was on the road all but 30 days a year. So yeah. now uh, a lot of the guys come to me Mainly, uh, instead of me going to them, they come to me because of the environment that we're shooting in where, where I live. So we have average 17-mile-hour winds uh, sure. every week. I think for since I've been training uh, that facility for the last 12 years, uh, since 2006, we've never had a week that I had a training group there that we didn't see winds over 20-mile-hour. So, you know, we may have a couple of what we call low wind days, which are 12, yep. and then it, it'll, it may gust and it may blow 45 miles an hour, you know, while we're there. And we just keep training. It's just a bigger number that you shoot. It's just math. So it's, it's not any, actually can actually be easier when the winds are blowing than when winds are light and variable. So light and variable can be actually yes. very tricky. Winds that are 30 are consistent and they blow and, and it's something that's really not that hard to shoot in. So, but most of the guys come to me, I have, 360-degree uh, courses, so in a short time you can walk a quarter-mile loop. Uh, actually, uh, one of the groups out of Australia came over, went to my ranges, and recreated the same range in Australia because of the yep. value that the... But it may, most of the time when we go to a military base, uh, they booked a range three months in advance, and whatever winds we have, that's what we have all day, and we have very uh, restrictive uh, range fans at yep. most military bases. So. Uh, by the time you take your third shot, you know what the wind is, and the training values pretty much cease yeah. at that point. So yeah. uh, that's why I love the 360, and that's why a lot of the guys come to me. They said they drove the train there for five days, and then me come to them for 15 days. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's a every target is a brand new wind call. You have to stop. You have to say, all right, what's my cosign? Uh, and it's a terrain featured wind course. So we have uh, what we call cap rocks, or you know. Uh, hills that are flat on top and then valleys and it, and it makes us look at terrain, how terrain manip manipulates the wind flow patterns. Yep. And so you'll have compressed airflow, uh, catabatic winds or graphic winds. You, you'll be able to kind of really have to assess what the wind's doing based off the terrain where your bullet is in flight path compared yep. to where the terrain is. So it, it's a really, uh, some of the guys have actually stated in their opinion, they call it a uh, postgraduate course uh, when, you, when they shoot on that course because it's 100% learning on every target, 
and it's a what they call next level, you know, like beyond what college would be for, yep. for shooters. So it's, uh, we try to make a lot of ranges like that. We have a, what we call a golf course. It's a driving course through the train in which it's the same thing, but we're down in the train instead of shooting over a cross train, yep. we're down in it. And now you're have to, having to look at what amount of the air was blocked uh, by the train feature and how to make a wind call based off that. So yeah, it's it, it's entertaining to say the yeah. least. Uh, well, I mean, a lot of the, the field shooting or the gong shooting or steel, have you want to call it, in New Zealand, the competitions we have are generally held on similar sort of terrain because it'll be off a farm area or we having to use the terrain as our um, danger space and our yep, backstops. Exactly. There's very, uh, the, the flat, ranges with that distance are generally F-class and it's yep. a different thing, it's not Correct. field steel so it's um, it's quite interesting and, and like you say it's you know you've done it you sit down on a flat range that first shot yeah you know you've got your wind pretty much just for it whereas um, a lot of Simon who's a gentleman who organises a lot of the competitions in the, the lower north and the, the lower the north island um, he loves wind because yeah. if it's if there's no wind, where's the it's not training. Yeah, yeah once that, you got the elevation yeah. stuff and the rest. That's that's, that's what wind? I say all the time. Win? Yeah, it, if the wind's not blowing, it's not training. Yeah, so. and it, it's something I've learned to actually appreciate because yeah, you learn a lot more when you're forced. Even if you're completely wrong, you're learning more yeah. compared to that day which is so flat. Yeah. So um, I mean, my my introduction to you was through the Magpul series yeah. of videos, which were a decade ago. A decade ago. <laughs> Dang, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. So, but but I think for a lot of people that was probably who were, um, say, not involved with your training or military would have been the introduction to it. Yeah, that was the serious. first time that we ever stepped up. Matter of fact, uh, we had uh, no real uh, market uh, outside the military. When I say market, there, there would have been some if we wanted some, but uh, we, we kept it very strict, military only. We didn't advertise, we didn't do anything. My website uh, was one page. Uh, and it didn't talk much about anything or what we taught. It was really just a point of contact information for military to get a hold of me. Yeah. And then uh, we, we kind of moved from that, you know, forward. Uh, it's still not much more than that, only because we, we really don't get into exactly what we're teaching uh, to all our competitors and kind of, yeah. you know, just show them. Uh, you know, we're not we're not there to kind of show them what we're doing. Everybody's already coming to me anyway, as far as the military goes. We're booked. I'm booking, actually, I think I have about six, seven weeks in 2019 that's not booked. Mm. So we're about booked nearly to 2020 right now. So it's, uh, and it stays that way. Yeah. You know, it, it's something that it, you, you can't, you can't gripe about, you know, uh, being busy, but it, it's, it's hard only in that if I do training this week with a group, if they don't book that same week, you know, six months ago they're not going to get it yeah so that that's our i like i like it better when i go in do a week and they go hey can we have this week next year and i go yep so you're good and we write it down and everybody yeah exactly so but most guys are getting good uh, we have a uh, five-year contract with the uh, navy special warfare for the seals for 10 times a year so uh, that's going to continue on for the next five years and then uh, most groups understand now to where they'll go ahead and book out most groups will call me up and say hey uh, let's book five times between now and 2020, and they'll book out that far out in advance, just so that they can have slots. Yep. So the the from because last year you released the not the follow up, but you released your own DVD series of it, the long range. Oh, that wasn't last year. That was yeah. I think that was like four years ago, maybe. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, actually, that one's pretty old too. Yeah, I know. That's, okay, yeah. right. So... The, the, there was a, a decent gap between those two though, so there was obviously, and even watching that second one, there was slight changes oh, yeah, between them. Changes. So for the, the guys who are still catching up, because in New Zealand anyway, that Magpul one was never officially available down here. We couldn't actually get it. You wouldn't, they wouldn't send it outside of yeah. New Zealand, so there's lots of people who watched it though. Um, so that came through, then, uh, then we got the second one. What were some of the key changes? You know, you know I, I think uh, it kind of goes back to the point that, we, yeah, that we, we never quit growing. Yeah. Uh, we never quit trying to make it easier for long-range shooters to do their job, uh, never giving up accuracy. Uh, but always making sure we can give them speed where yep. speed's available. Uh, so, and then precision is always final. So it, it's something that we're, we're always progressing. We're always changing. We're always making, like even the wind formula, making it much easier. So the, the quick wind formula went from uh, range plus wind or range times wind plus wind. And we've changed all that. Now, okay. now we don't do that anymore. Uh, it's still range times wind, but it's times wind of whatever the multiple is and the half multiple. Sure. And then we favor with the one mile hour that we may be off instead of do math on it. So, yeah. and we can get into deep into why, uh, but it's actually much more accurate this way and faster. And so, well, I, I mean, I would, which is what I had to do with, with both of those, um, that footage is, is getting it. Yeah. sitting down with a notepad and just being able to rewind and go through it with you again. Because the first time, even I remember on the Magpuls, I remember you standing in front of a tar targets and explaining it all, and about 10 minutes later, I was yeah. just like, I just had to, okay, I've got to yeah, go yeah. back and watch it. But after you follow along a few times, actually do some of the, the, the working it out yourself, it starts to make a bit more sense. Yeah, and in my deal with the videos, we could have slowed it down and run at a very slow pace and gave, you know, 100 examples for each one and the guy would have got minimal training out of the video. Yeah. What, I, what I tried to do was, I knew oh, everybody has a uh, rewind button, yeah, well, so exactly give as much information yeah. as possible. Make sure you talk through it enough that uh, the guys can understand it once they've gone back through. The information's there, but they have to stop and slow down yeah. and rewind and do it three or four or five times before yeah. they go, oh, that's the part I missed. As long as all the information's there, we wanted to make sure we got as much in the whole segment videos uh, as we could, so that it was uh, more beneficial to the to the client. Well, it occurred to me until I went back and started listening to that and doing that, I hadn't done any real form of like calculus or maths or having to actually figure stuff out since I left school. Mm. For a lot of what we do is, as shooters or adults, we don't have to do that in our head, yep. so you just lose it. But yep. then. As a kid, you probably it would have just all fired off anyway. So it's just practicing, getting the brain up and going, yeah. and, and doing it. And I think that was the big thing for me. So I, I think, and and people still refer those original Magpul things. And it, I think sometimes it must must frustrate you a little bit because you've already released another thing, and your teaching would be quite different from that. But there's still yeah. a few things that stick that people are. And I'm obviously thinking about some of the the grip things and the loading the bipods now. Yeah, and we've even changed that uh, loading bipods uh, has changed with me uh, in that we still load bipods uh, to a level. So yeah. uh, what what we teach now is that you know when we're when we're shooting precision fire. Uh, we still put fingertips on the front of the grip. Uh, we still load into our shoulder with our fingertips. And then because it's consistent, and that's the number one thing that we're looking for is consistency. And, you know, once we touch a weapon system, we're only taking away from the accuracy that it's, that it's capable of. So it's capable of X amount of accuracy with guns, optic, and ammo. 
and then as soon as we touch it, we're degrading that. So what we want to do is become a ransomware story platform that allows the, the weapon system to have the same consistent uh, pressure points on it every time to, to allow it to be consistent. So as we use the fingertips pulling into our shoulder and then lightly loading the bipod till the bipod starts to move away from us, at that point we hold and, and shoot. We don't stop and back up, but we hold that amount of pressure. And the reason we started doing that that way was uh, to have more consistency when you're shooting off of pavement or on top of a vehicle or out in the dirt. It was something you could recreate. So digging in bipods heavily and pushing, loading really hard, not only were we breaking bipods, but, but you cannot recreate that same consistency off a vehicle or off a roof or you know some of the places that I may find my uh, military guys shooting or, yeah. or even myself out hunting. Uh, I was looking at a deer one day and it wasn't a long shot, it's only 800 meters and I was shooting off the top of my pickup and when I got ready to, to take the shot I loaded on my bipods and I was like hmm it moved away from me and I was like this is not the same way that I shoot. Yeah. And so sure enough, I went right over his back and missed him. And I was like, all right, so this has to stop. So yeah. I went back in. So I, I tell the guys, everything's not always black and white. There are times that I load my iPods really heavy. Those times are more of if, if I'm shooting at something that's close and I have to spot myself, I'm not going to move myself minute of angle of the capability of the weapon system off a close target. So I'll grip it really tight. I'll load heavy into my bob my bipods to give myself more capable or a, a more of a capable way of uh, seeing recoil yeah. or, or managing recoil and seeing impact so second shot corrections so I, when I know I need to spot for myself and I need that cap capability uh, then I'm going to load heavy into it if mm. if it's there if I can uh, but yeah the, we've changed some of the ways that we've taught a lot of that stuff but like I said we're always progressing always growing and always trying to find a better way so then uh, there's another another question I've got to have which kind of ties onto that is and that was um, it was one that Simon actually asked I think originally was shooting from position where your NPA your natural point of aim just isn't possible where you're going to be canned off you're out any quick tips to yeah do that, that actually you know, a lot of our training is we're training our brain mm. so we're we're telling our our brain what's acceptable. Uh, when we're shooting, so that's when we lay straight behind the weapon system, uh, and, you know, load out our uh, elbows straight, you know, to the right to where through recoil it's not breaking our shoulder down, but it's actually pushing the whole body away from the weapon system. So really, the gun falls back down on line. So basically, when we line up that way, uh, it does give us. Uh, some capability. Obviously, we had shooters, F-class shooters, in in mm -hmm. shooters before that shot phenomenal groups that were canned on weapon yeah. systems. So it's not that you can't shoot that way. It's just a better way of shooting to to give you the capability to see impacts and make quick adjustments. And so uh, more when you're shooting off your natural point of aim. Uh, you know, and I'm real big on natural point of aim to where, you know, you, you pull the weapon system into your shoulder, you find find your target preloading, and then once you find your target, then you load. But when you load on but when you load on target, then actually at that point in time, you've loaded into your natural point of aim because if you push and then you start digging and looking for a target, now you're off your point of aim under recoil, the gun's going somewhere else, you didn't see yeah. your impact. So what I've found though, that your body will compensate once your mind knows what it needs. So if you're shooting in an area that's off your natural point of aim, you'll find yourself rolling your shoulder and putting more pressure into it. 
Uh, it may not manage all of it, but you can probably get 80% of it. Mm. But the, the, the training you've previously done with working with MPA, yeah, like gets your brain in exactly. this. Like, it should yep. feel like this when I'm going to be Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know you know the implications and the results yeah. of what's fixing to happen, and then yeah. your brain goes, well, hey, if I do this, I think yeah. it'll help manage some. And obviously through training, uh, and I tell people all the time, we need to train for those times. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not always laid perfectly behind the gun, you know, yeah. on the range. It's like, all right, so now my grouping's good, my wind calling's good. Now you want to take it to the next level. Uh, now you need to shoot off barricades, maybe shoot around a corner, maybe shoot off a log, do, doing something that, you know, get, make sure you're doing training all the time, not just laying down well, shooting. We, for a lot of shooters in New Zealand, the, the civilian shooters, most of their, their training is all done on flat range. Yep. So when they get up and start doing some field shooting with us and come out to a couple of competitions, apart from maybe the, the couple of shots they take hunting, during the year, it's the first time they've actually intentionally got up off there and yeah. shot, and then you then turn around. No, and then you turn around and point out to them that when they're hunting, if they're hunters, that's their, that's what they're doing it for. Well, that's you should be doing more of that than the flat shooting. Like you say, once you've sussed the system and you know that that's all yeah, good, and get off your belly. It's just like always in my training. We start out on the flat range and and we move. I say flat range, we start prone. Yeah. And we move from prone all the way around. You know, I get guys come to me all the time and they say, hey. Uh, we don't want to be uh, shooting off our belly, you know, as little as possible. We want to be on tripods, bipods, whatever, you know, sitting, you know, whatever unconventional uh, shooting position that they may want to work on that day. And I'm like, yep, fine. You know, we'll do as much of it as we can. And, and we get out to the wind course and we set down the winds blowing 23 mile an hour and they pull out their tripods and I'm like, all right, you know, <laughs> let's go ahead and start pretty quick back to the prone. Yeah. And I, and I laugh and I tell them, you know, that's that's great training, but that's the training we do when the wind's not blowing. Yeah. You know, and not saying that I would never shoot with winds blowing off a tripod, but we trained up to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, my my main deal is, you know, I've had military come in. And they go, hey, I want the guys in body armor and helmets and blah 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 the whole time, and I'm like, you know, we're we're going to be crushing their brains with. Uh, we're going to be crushing their brains with with math and problem solving. So let, let's let's nice ease yeah let's let's ease that for a little bit. I said I tell you what, when the guys are actually hitting all their targets, yeah. or at least seventy percent of them, then we'll put them in kit and make them run. And hey, that's a good idea. And you know, most of the time we never get to the kit. Yeah. We may get to the kit on the last day for competition for play a little bit, but uh, we really need to focus on. Uh, our number one reason we miss targets is wind. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not elevation. I tell everybody in a box of ammo, well, you ought to be able to take a scope that I give you, mount it on your gun or a gun, get your gun zeroed, get your gun trued. Now you have everything out to transonic, you know, inside of super, supersonic and do DSF, which is, you know, at least uh, 200 meters into subsonic yeah. in a box of ammo and in 10 minutes. This is quick, this is known, this is science. So this is not anything that's, well, I need you know 40 rounds in half a day to get my dope like we used to, or half a day was a joke, usually it's two days to yeah. get your dope. And then we'd never even got out to the distances we're shooting today in, in 10 minutes. Mm. So it, it's something that, you know, has obviously changed and a lot of the schoolhouses have went to that. You know, we, you can shoot through a, a, a chrono and if you have a custom drag model uh, and a, you know, it's going to work and that's the proper way and if, if something along the lines doesn't work out you true the system up and that fixes it and it's usually some other error that we've incorporated in the yep. system so uh, there are also other uh, contingencies like potentially your barrel 
is uh, degrading the BC of the bullet inside. I, I can remember a time that we had an Ailer 88 sitting there and I had, it was like 13 uh, Mark 13s, which was uh, Special Forces 300 Win Mags. And everybody had a consistent somewhere around 0.533 for the BC. And I had one gun that never made 0.5. Shooting the same ammo, same everything. So even if you shot that gun through a chronograph, took it out and had a custom drag model for it, it's not gonna work. It's so since, enough. yeah, so since it had a degraded BC, uh, the, the barrel was doing, we had, we couldn't use the Muzwasi uh, with the custom drag model that, that it was given to us uh, by the chronograph. So we had to bend the, the Muzwasi to accommodate for the bad BC, which was now an unknown. Uh, we, we knew what it was because we had an Ailer 88, but you would have not have known yep. without the $20,000 or taking it to Doppler. So, but it was a quick fix. You treat the system, everything worked fine. So all the way out, he shot just as good as everybody on the range. And that's the key point of what truing is. It, it takes everything and fixes the math for you, whether you know what the problem is or not. So, you know, we've been doing this. I tell people I've, I've had 700 people a year for the last 14 years. And it's not been it, probably the last 12 years. Uh, and out of all those people, you know, over 7,000 guys, I've never had one person that truing didn't work if he did it right. So, you know, I'm sure we've had, you know, hundreds of people all over the world that said, yeah, I tried truing, it didn't work, but I promise you they're not doing it right. Yeah. Hence, well, the, and, and Kestrel, with one of the recent updates, added in the easy mode as well to actually walk you through the guys using the Kestrels to actually true up with it. Great. And it's something that I've, I was listening to, I think it was an interview with um, yourself, uh, Brian Litz, I forget his name, but the gentleman from Kestrel at one of the shot expos. Probably Nick Vitalbo. Yeah, yes. so Nick is our code writer. Uh, he does a lot of the integration between uh, a laser range finder and the Kestrel talk and the Bluetooth. So yep. that's that's his, uh, you know, huge part of the, of the system is he, he's our code writer and our integrator. So he's he's our head tech guy, yeah. <laughs> you might say. That makes well, that, it all so that, that's the thing with truing for me because it's there's like a lot of common thing, thinking now. They're talking about truing your BCs and doing distance with that. Yeah, the problem, so let's stop real quick there. On, yeah. on truing BCs, uh, we, we've all done it back in the past. I think back in the day when I first started, uh, we, we didn't have a truing option, so it was we played with our BCs and we played with our muzzle loss and yep. we played with everything that we could to try to make everything match up and work. And, and I can remember I had to have three different guns and I'd played with each of them individually to make a gun work. So I had zero to 500 and 500 to 700 and 700 to 1,000. And I just select the range, but it's all the same gun, but it was a different set of ballistics yeah. that kind of made it work. Yep. Obviously, we didn't know what we was doing. <laughs> so we moved away from that. And, and at the time, I was actually truing BCs. And I can remember uh, asking Ken Ayler because I was doing some testing for the government. And uh, I talked to Ken Ayler, the Ayler 35P yep. uh, inventor. And so Dr. Ayler told me, he said, hey, Todd, I told him, I said, I need to buy an Ayler 45. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing some military testing. I need actual BCs and, and data. And then he said, uh, how are you doing it? And I said, I kind of hate to tell you because I said, it's kind of country. And he said, well, you know, tell me what you're doing. I said, well, I take a sheetrock and I put it out at transonic and I shoot through a chronograph and I shoot 10 shots. And I take the average muzzle. I say, I plug it in and I change the BC in the system until it matches where my mean of my yeah. group's printing. And he said, don't buy my equipment. And, and, and I thought I had pissed him off. And I said, uh, hey, well, I kind of need it for, for this government test. And he said, you don't know what you're doing. And I said, I know, that's why I need your equipment. And he said, no, what you're doing is giving you perfect real yeah. BCs. Uh, the problem with that though, 
so now we can move forward. So he agreed that we can find our BC that way. But when we find our BC, you're actually finding your comparative uh, comparison of efficiency is basically what you might say a BC is. So a G1 BC is one BC. A the standard G7 BC or standard G7 drag model is a one BC. Uh, they're both one inch in diameter and weigh one pound. Yeah. The, the problem with that is if I take the 1BC G1 standard model, compare it to the G7, now it's a 0.512, so it's no longer a G1 that's a 1BC. It is now a G1 that is a 0.512 in the G7. So the G7 number for it's 0.512, the G1 number for it's one. So what has happened when you uh, true out your BCs, you're, you're actually changing or, or accepting a G7 or a G1 as, as the drag model that you want to use, uh, which is obviously not what your bullet is. Uh, it may be closely resembled by the G7, but it's not the G7. So the math that we use for it is not perfect. Uh, now, I tell everybody, and we teach in our class, G1, G7, custom drag models, uh, and even a bad BC that's true. So if you get a bad BC off the internet and you don't know it's bad, but you true the systems out, uh, which basically means you just true your Mazvasi out, what you're gonna find is you're, you're gonna be perfect to supersonic and with all of them. So the, even the bad BC with the bad Mazvasi is still within a tenth of a mil of, all, and I'm, we're looking at every hundred meters all the way out. Uh, once you trude that system out. So everything works perfect until you get to and into sub. Yep. So now the G1 is not gonna give you correct math and the G7 isn't gonna give you correct math. The G7 is still better and, uh, and I'd advise using it only if you don't have a custom drag model. The custom drag model, Brian spends a lot of times actually developing. Once he came down and, and looked at truing and what we're doing with truing, uh, he started making custom drag models and he, he, we adopted the the truing into the AB, it was already into the Kessel at the time under horse, and I had uh, BC extrapolation, which basically is turned into uh, DSF. We've just changed the way it actually works in the system. So it's subsonic truing, so once I built that into the system, uh, we kind of kept it in the system uh, with Brian, and then he built custom drag models uh, at that time for each bullet. So now we're using the math made for that bullet. So anytime that you true a BC, you're, you're actually degrading your capability once you get into sub. It works fine in supersonic. Well, that, I think that's the thing as well. You see so much conversation online and locally and, and guys having this conversation. We're talking about truing and all these bits and pieces. And then you realize we're, we're talking also about shooting five, six, 700 meters anyway, yeah. and we're going deeper and deeper. You know, it's it's the thing I've seen guys on the line. They've taken a shot, they've missed them. The first thing they do is start get their phone out, get the Kestrel out, get a chart, and start trying to do all this high end maths on it. Yeah. And I remember saying to a guy, it's like, well, did you see where the bullet hit or where you missed? He's like, yeah. You got a reticle in there, eh? Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Stop overthinking it. We're, at this distance, it's okay. And that was a good day for me because I got to watch this guy do it and previously I'd been the same. If I'd, I'd missed, I would have figured out how my maths was wrong. Yeah, and then, unfortunately there's a lot of other errors. So, you know, you take ex extreme spread of your ammo yeah. and, you know, I see a lot of guys, they get, they get all wrapped up around, you know, uh, they shoot. But, you know, it, there's a lot of other variables that come into play, uh, like MB temp tables and are you managing the temperature sensitivity of the powder for that ammo? So, you know, you, you, when we look at density altitude, we can look at, uh, you know, 700 meters. Uh, 2,000 foot density altitude change, which, 60, which is 16 degrees of Celsius change, which we probably already had this morning from the time I got up at daybreak to now, or, or close to it. That's 2,000 
feet or what 600 meters of, of density altitude difference, but at 700 meters, it's only 0.25 mils. Mm. So it, there, there's not that much, but we may have also seen a increase of 40 feet per second in, in your powder, in your burn rates because uh, of, the, of the hotter temperatures. So now the density altitude in the MV temp tables are totally separate monsters that we have to have to deal with. Density altitude's easy. Uh, temp table is something we have to work on, and if you're shooting ammo that is temperature sensitive, uh, that 40 feet may be, it, well, it will be, it'll be more like uh, 0.35 mils, yeah. you know, at that distance. So, so now, if it doubled, if it was increased in velocity and increased in DA, which it would be as it got hotter, now we're 0.5 off. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's actually, that'd be uh, 0.6 off to, in total between the two, but then they, they look at it as like, well, I need to true my system out. Well, in, in a way, if they recollect their atmospherics and retrue their muzzle, I see now everything's correct, but they're only managing a more of a 1D world instead of a 3D world. So if he goes out in the morning and tries to shoot a foul at 700 meters, he's gonna miss. Yeah, but in, because he's not managing the system. The system still includes MV temp tables. So I went elk hunting this year up in Wyoming and I looked at the forecast and it, it was not supposed to be somewhere between uh, 20 degrees Fahrenheit and maybe 60 degrees Fahrenheit for the cold to the, the hot of the day. So uh, I went out and I froze ammo, got it to 18 degrees and then uh, it was 66 degrees ambient temperature that day after lunch. So I left ammo in the car all day and, and went out and grabbed my cold ammo and went out and shot it immediately after lunch. 1200 meters, hit the target center, grabbed my hot ammo, stuck in, hit the target center again, boom. H1000 is not very temperature sensitive, so it's awesome. <laughs> so I didn't have to build a quick MV temp table for my yes. 300 Norma. Yeah. So it, it was something that uh, we need to manage more. It's one of the biggest problems, I think, that people don't manage because they don't understand it. Uh, but if you're a long range shooter and you're not running MV temp tables, I don't consider you a long range shooter because that is a huge part of the problem. Well, you hear a lot of the guys who are reloading where the sort of the, the winter we'll say is almost the off season so that's where they'll do a lot of their reloading load testing everything like that and you get to summer nice wonderful day field shooting and everything out in the beating sun and they fire that load that they'd, they'd got up to max pressure in winter oh yeah suddenly bolts are sticking and yeah blowing primers and everything else yeah like, and oh, velocities are nowhere near what they thought yeah. they were or what they did test yeah. you know what they really were but yeah it, it's something that not only in load development but in, in actual use even for the military you know, if we go out and we train and it's uh, zero degrees and then we go train and it's 40 degrees, you know, unfortunately, uh, we'll lay down, check our zero, get a quick true, shoot the rest of the day, we're all good, we're hit every target, everything's awesome. Uh, we may miss for wind, but we always miss for wind. That's yeah. why we train. Yeah. So, you know, that, that gives us a good warm and fuzzy, but unfortunately, uh, in the hunting world, uh, and my passion is, you know, long range hunting, but, in the hunting world, uh, just like in the military LE world, when they call you out, you know, you're expected to take one shot and hit a target no matter what temperature it is. And if you have shot all day the, the day prior and it was warm that afternoon, you go in the next morning at zero degrees when you have to take a shot at daybreak, if you're not running MV temp tables, you're not you're you're not hitting long range targets. So if your ammo is temperature sensitive, so obviously the number one thing is like me, grab H1000 powders that shoot very well, hot or cold, uh, and something you can rely on. Unfortunately, most of the militaries around the world don't have that capability. Uh, they're not shooting H1000. They're shooting other things. So it's it's a it's an issue. 
But it's something that is very deterministic. We can we know what the answer is. We know how to find it. Uh, we plug in the MV temp tables in the Kestrel. Now, when you collect your ambient temperature, it gives you the correct muzzle velocity. We're off and running. Easy day. Uh, yeah. The uh, you just something you said just reminded me of something else. I I got to see recently was a. Um, and, and it's good because it gets guys into the shooting and encourages them, but, but shooting out, for example, I was shooting my 308 out over a kilometre, so yep. a bit of distance, and I just knew if my load, I was in transonic, so yep. um, I hadn't trued it out to that distance, so I had one round going on, next one had go off to the side, going off the side, I'm, they all felt good to me, but I just knew that I was at that point with that system that I wasn't going to be hitting all the target all the time, even if yep. I did my best. Yeah, just extreme, extreme just, spread. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, and it's I knew that was happen. okay. So I sat back and went, yeah, that's right, I know I'm at my limit. But I was also observing guys who would take the same amount of shots at me, hit one, and now that was it. Now they're a long-range hunter because <laughs> they've done it once. Yeah. So do you, for guys who are wanting to get into long-range hunting, it's something that's growing all around the world down here as well, do you have sort of a guideline for guys? Because... Maybe the person who does it doesn't have a guideline, but for guys who want to go, right, what's my capacity now as a long-range hunter? Right, it so, hit every time? Now, yeah, so it, it really goes back to uh, what your confidence level is, truly. So, you know, I, I've hunted all my life. Uh, I even put my guns down for seven years and strictly hunted with a bow and, and actually getting, just bought a bow here recently to kind of get back into bow hunting. Uh, it, it's it's the field craft, it's being close, it's the adrenaline, it's, it's everything that hunting is, it, it's awesome. Uh, but in bow hunting, I hated the guys that hunted with comp, uh, or with uh, uh, crossbows because you know the sights and the trigger and now that was rifle shooting short range rifle shooting is what we called it so we didn't think that they should be able to hunt in our season which was you know really when you understand bow hunting it's it's not uh getting close to the animal mm. it's actually once you get close to the animal now you have to draw your weapon or draw your bow back without the animal seeing you yeah. and being able to be still enough quiet enough to get the shot off so you know, getting up that close is not a kill. Yeah. It's actually getting at to full draw with the yeah with the animal giving you the shot. You know, expose you may be at full draw, and then he turns, and then you're sitting there and waiting, 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 and waiting for him to turn. So, that is bow hunting. So to sit there and pick up my bow slowly or my compound, not compound, my uh, crossbow slowly, pick it up and shoot quickly. That's that's not bow hunting. So we didn't, you know, in Todd's world. So yeah, that's not yeah. my that's my opinion. So there's a lot of people who would be pissed at me yeah. right now, but I still yeah, agree with myself. Now, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm used to people being pissed with me, so I, that's okay. I'm used to it. So my deal is it, it it goes back to there's a certain season given to bow hunters because what it is. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe maybe crossbows should be the week after that. Uh, but it shouldn't be in our season. That's, I'm not saying it should be illegal to hunt with them. I'm saying it shouldn't be in the same early season that the bow hunters get. Yep. Uh, and then, same thing, once we get into uh, rifle shooting long range, my son killed his deer last year at 2,040 meters. So it's, uh, we've killed at 2,040, 2,009, 16, uh, We've had pig kills at 1873, 1504, 1550 two weeks ago. Uh, so it's, we, we've done a lot of long range shooting. Uh, our deal is if, if I, know, I know the competency of the guys that I shoot with, so a buddy of mine uh, owns a ranch next to me, the, the guy that actually patented deer cloning. Uh, me and him went out, saw a big deer, and 
he decided he was going to kill it it's on his own property in season so everything you know it's all legal so we go out the next day and we get set up and and we end up taking the deer at 700 meters well that's not long range but it was his long range so there, there's nothing derogatory i have people ask me all the time you know what's long range and i'm like what's long range to you so what, what I hate is when people set rules based off their limits for me. Yep. So if they go, we should never shoot deer over 300 meters. Uh, I would never shoot with a gun probably. I'd just hunt with a bow if that was the actual law. You know, so not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not for me at that point. So uh, I consider long range, whatever long range is for you that you feel you should be able to hit and you're competent that you should be able to hit my son. Uh, we work at it hard, we go out and we practice, and when we were filming the Long Range Made Easy video, he was shooting my 300 Norma, and we got ready for the mile shot, and we got a 308 with me and, and the 300 Norma with him, and I said, all right, you know, go ahead and make your call, and I give him a, a, a wind call, and Brian's looking at Kessel and doing wins, and, and he, you know, uh, gives a wind call, and we sit there, and he shoots first round hit, and it's on the 16-inch plate with the 12-inch head, and immediately first round hit and, and you know we're high-fiving you know happy and yeah. so the cameras get up and move around so I tell them I said all right Kobe here's the deal we're not lying so you hit first round we're, this is beauty roll so we just need a different angle of the same thing happening mm. so this is just for for camera work yep. so I said so when you see your bullet hit the dirt and miss now make <laughs> sure the time of flight's correct and yep. then we'll high-five again yep. you know so just like we did the first time so it, you know and so he shot four out of five first round hits. And each shot had about a 15 minute variable by the time they got set up. So it was, it was truly a first yeah. round shot, but he was able to hit four out of five at a mile. He's very, very good at long range shooting. So a mile shot for Colby is, is I'm not gonna say easy, but we do it enough that we're very competent at yeah. it, especially with that caliber. Now, if you said, hey, uh, I, I, I'll give you thousand dollars to hit that target at a mile with your 308 but if you miss it you'll give me a hundred dollars I'm not gonna take that yeah. bet because I've seen how many bullets we put down range trying to hit targets and once you understand the math the extreme spread of the ammo what what actual minute of angle capability you have at that range based off your ammo so if I take military ammo I know I could be a half mil high or half mil low and do the best shot in the world yeah. and, and, and make a perfect wind call and then I also know you can be off half mile iron miss target. So, and, and we can't judge, and especially when you're shooting winds that are, you know, potentially 16 mile hour to 20 mile hour at those top ranges, or even a variable, you know, six to eight mile hour wind, you're you're probably missing 80% of the time with a 308 just based off extreme spread. So, once you understand the math, the math, the knowledge kind of tells you what you're capable of. So if you're shooting a 300 Norma that's very capable at that distance, you know, uh, as far as extreme spreads and, and minute of angle grouping, uh, that tells you kind of what you should be able to do. And then you have to look at winds. Yeah. How competent are you with your winds? Do you have MV temp tables built? What temperature of the day is it? What's your ammo at? All that stuff. But once you learn more and have more knowledge of the system, uh, then that allows you to go farther. Uh, not saying that everybody that understands math should be out there shooting deer at 1,600 no. meters. Because well, you still need to do your part on that. Yeah, and, and my deal is I'm a huge fan of anybody getting out pulling the trigger. I don't care if it's at 10 meters with a pellet rifle all the way, you know, through a 50 at 3,000 meters. Uh, but I, I think we should be, you know, 
very competent when we're taking those long range shots and very responsible also because uh, what we don't want to do is lose our hunting rights because we're wounding animals. Safe. It's yeah. the same thing with the bow and arrow. We always were scared. It, was, it wasn't that we had to share with, with the crossbow guys. It was that, you know, we even didn't like the fact that you could pick up a bow at Walmart uh, the night before bow season and not even know how to sight it in and go out the next morning and legally hunt, you know, in, in our uh, season. And, and the reason we didn't like it, it was because guys could, because it extended their season a month, they would do that and then they'd stick a deer in, in the rear and run off. And now everybody sees, oh, there's a deer with an arrow, you know, sticking out of yeah. them. And everybody's like, we need to stop bow hunting. Well, they don't, they don't stop and look at how many hours we put in with a bow and same with a rifle. And they, what they look at is the one unresponsible person that just run out there and took a long range shot and you know threw it out over the mountain and then it hit the deer and he's you know walking around with the back leg broken and will that happen? Yes, you know it's going to happen. Uh, but I think you need to accept that as a hunter at some point. Well, I know, I know, I know plenty of guys that have wounded and lost animals at 200 yards. Yes. Yeah. So or 60 yards. Yeah. So it, it's not something that we're fixing by saying no long range hunting. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's, I, I can guarantee there's more animals wounded and lost inside of 200 meters than there probably has ever been uh, wounded and lost at long range. Uh, so, not, and, and I'm not saying that we should all shoot long range, I'm just saying that you know we can't look at small instances. And you know it, it's hard to put, uh, limitations on anybody I think it has to be self done you know with bows I wouldn't mind you know having to hit a pie plate at 20 meters to be able to have a bow hunting license mm. uh, only because it, it's helping us you yeah. know and I don't like regulation I don't like the big brother I don't like more government at, at all but also uh, we have to have fuel to fight the anti world you know the anti hunting world we have to say hey we're managing our yeah. deal you know, we're taking care of it. We're trying to do the best that we can to be responsible for it. I often say to people, if you don't self-regulate, then government, somebody else, has to come in and regulate for you, and they have to do it so heavy-handed because they're now not regulating for you, they're regulating for the lowest common denominator. Yep. So you're yep. much better to self-regulate in that way because you can set your own boundaries and negotiate that. Yeah, I agree. I agree, but and then I wouldn't want anybody taking a five-five-six and shooting at a thousand, you know, at a red deer either. Yep. You know, so to me that's unresponsible. But again, with knowledge, and I don't know how we actually regulate that stuff because uh, it, it's not that anybody's. I don't know how. Well, it, it's a long hard deal to self-regulate and say this caliber is no good because I've had people say yeah. a twenty-two two fifty is no good for hunting mule deer. I've killed more mule deer with a twenty-two two fifty when I was young than any other gun I've killed a mule deer with afterwards. Yep. And I only shot them one shot. So and, and we've shot them out to distance with it. And I've only had to take one shot to dispatch one. So uh, I think it's shot placement, it's everything. But also, you know, I, I would hate to see the day that uh, a father and his son uh, couldn't go out and go on a hunt uh, in that we've set restrictions that, well, he has to be 13 before he yeah. can go hunting or 16 yep. or 18. Uh, and then only then, you know, and set. Yeah, I'm not I'm not opposed to caliber restrictions though. Uh, to where we actually, hey, if you're gonna hunt, you can't hunt with a 22 for, for yeah. Yeah. deer, you yeah. know, so. Well, we have a similar thing for regional parks and stuff. You can't go out with a 22. 
Yeah, um, true. But or, oh, sorry, or if a, room, a twenty-two room fire, like a twenty-two LR, you can't have yeah, those yeah, in the bush. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's not to say people haven't dropped animals in, in oh, situations. Yeah, them, I know. But, it, it's yeah. very lethal. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it is something that can be done. It's just like three hundred blackout. I'm not. Uh, I would. I'm not a fan of three hundred blackouts for hunting. Uh, I know too many people that have lost animals with them, so for that reason, I'm, I'm not a fan. But there's, there's nothing to say that that it's not a lethal weapon in the right hands, you know. But we, you have to you have to assess it and look at it realistically, and and then you have to always stop and say, you know, am I being the responsible hunter and not jeopardizing everybody else's rights uh, based off my desires of wanting to kill something with a 300 blackout or or something like that. So. Uh, it's again. I think it's just being responsible. Is a key well, word. something I often share with people is uh, Stephen Ranella, uh, meat eater over in the states, and he said if you take a shot at an animal and you're surprised that you hit, then that's not ethical. Yes. You should be surprised if you miss, and yep. that should be how it is. But you see guys take a shot and say, like, oh, oh, and they're all going to actually hit the thing. You're like. Yeah, Did you, ex have, you expected not to. Yeah. Whereas even himself, he's had stuff where he has missed, and you know, and it's just like, don't know what happened. But, it, it, well, it, and but it's it, just that mindset. Yeah, and then there's other opportunities there, and, and it depends on how people want to look at it. But uh, there's there's past animals in the United States, like uh, the, the the indigenous pig population that's you know destroying fields and farmers. Uh, they hate them and they'd love to, for people to come in and, and you know and kill the pigs and now it's becoming a cash crop because so many people would like to go down and go hunting pigs uh, but if you if you did shoot at a pig long range and you were surprised you hit him that's an animal that that they want dead anyway yep. you know so it, it's kind of like all right so you you were surprised you hit him you hit him everything's good even then i would still hate to wound one even yeah. though he's a past animal yeah. but but that would be a good start for long range you know especially for people in the states that have access to come down and do some long and it's year round there's no real season on pigs so it gives people the opportunity to maybe potentially go out and train for a deer hunt that they may want to push your limits on uh, but actually trained to the level they feel good and confident now and they, then they're not excited. Well I think the thing is with that while again like you're not saying I wouldn't suggest that it just means that it's open day to, to wound and injure these animals but it also means with, if it's not the perfect meat saver shot on the animal for example then it won't matter. For us we've got the goats, we've got wallabies down south it just you know it's still ethical we still want to do everything to make sure that they drop Sure. and you know um, <laughs> retrieving is maybe not always are concerned because they're a pest animal. They yep, can just go. Exactly. So, so um, anyway, so yeah, hunting. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Cut it off. It could go on for on and on. Oh, and yeah. And so many subjects. Cool. So, um, one th as an interjection, how long have I got you for? Well, I think about this. Oh yeah, we're good. Okay. I I'll tell you. Okay. Cool. So, um, back to the the shooting technique side of it, and this is sort of a bit of a selfish question because it's something I've. I've been working on recently and it, it's a it's a two-part thing I suppose so I'm a lefty left hand mm. uh, as a kid I was left eye dominant so when I first picked up my first air rifle left left no problem many years of um, doing photography and videography I think I've actually trained myself to almost switch over to the right eye so when I started up pistol shooting a couple of years ago we do the did the whole test and everything and now I was right eye dominant but um, there's nothing that would make me pick up a magnified optic or a rifle and want, make me want to look through it through my right eye. So it, it's two questions, because guys talk about cross-eye dominance. How 
which I've never been able to really read or figure out, how practically does that affect somebody shooting a magnified optic where they might just close their off-eye? And the other thing that backs into, something I've been playing with recently, is shooting with both eyes open versus one eye closed. Yeah, I shoot with both eyes open all the time. Well, as soon as you close the eye, you start putting the strain yep. uh, on your eyesight. So uh, I, I have a friend that I met way back in the cowboy action world, uh, and she had won several, uh, sorry, set several world records in, in the military yeah. shooting rifles. And she was cross-eyed dominant, but she would take scotch tape and put on her glasses to where it would blur. She couldn't see through it, but it would allow a lot to go into her eyes yeah. so she didn't put stress on everything. So uh, I, I don't think it's a problem. A lot of times I'll, I'll push uh, a, a weapon system that may be set up to fire right-handed and push it over to the left shoulder yeah. and still fire it right-handed, but with the left eye. We've uh, trained okay. military that way yeah, for yeah. years, and, and the guys seem to get on real well with it and have no issues. Mm. So it, it, they can still run the bolt fast, it's set up for right-handed weapon yeah. system, shoot through the left eye, left shoulder, just use the rear back here and run everything, it's not a problem. I think the only, only physical time I've found challenges running the right-handed firearm shooting left for me is, is some of the positional stuff where I'm holding it and then just where do I move my hand, you know. Yep. Prone makes very little difference because I'm supported enough, I don't know. Yeah, and and that's you know a big part of positional shooting is problem solving, yeah. and so a lot of times they may go, all right, this is a weak side uh, position, yes. and you, and everybody's running the same problem. Well, that you're we, we, well we do it with one of our competition, the twenty two com. We we force people to switch shooting left side, right side of a post, and you need to shift over to your yeah. left or your right shoulder, and in yeah. theory, your eye. Yeah. One of the competitors pointed out to me he was legally blind in one of his eyes, but I'm like, well, okay, that's, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> it's all good. He still did okay with it. Um, but but what I found just practicing, and I think the big thing for everyone is you just try these things, you know. I just tried shooting both eyes open, left, left, and I was still hitting targets. It's yeah. more just getting used to that. A lot that of times and, you, do, you try to focus harder too. Yes. You're, you're working yeah. and you end up shooting better. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we did that with a course I did recently, and I'd mentioned to them at the beginning one of the things my goals was to learn learn to shoot right-handed. So occasionally I could do it, or I picked up a stock that was yeah. not ambidextrous. Yeah. And halfway through the course, he said, oh, we'll put it on. You're doing very well now. Just put it on your other shoulder. And I think what it was is I didn't have any bad habits because I'd never done it. So it was yeah. like starting shooting in the air. Yeah. So... Mm. Um, so... You mentioned like with aiming, and I think it was in your the the long range shooting the the four years ago, but the recent DVD. <laughs> yeah. Um, that you were aim at the reticle, aim, 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 aim. Mm. And I've heard other people say reticle, reticle, reticle. Is there sort of have you got your uh, called it in here a mantra? Have you got sort of this this shooting checklist that you run through in your head I, I every think, time? Yeah, or is I it, think everybody does. Uh, you and, know. and what is it for you? Yeah. So a, a lot of it is you know you start out with natural point of aim, so you you make sure your alignment if it's available. Uh, you make sure you're, you're, you have proper alignment for equal management. The most important thing after the shot is to be able to see where you miss potentially and make a good fast second shot correction. So uh, recoil management should be you know, nearly a starting point uh, to, to allow yourself a better position to potentially be able to see impact. Uh, but after that, you know, uh, it, it kind of runs back to that making sure what your elevation hold is and knowing it without having to go back and check again. And, and my deal is all about speed. You know, as hunters, uh, when you're hunting so many times you get to a point that you're you know 
you found the animal by the time you got your gun set up and now you looked at your dope sheet, whether it's in your Kessel or wherever you're keeping your dope sheet, and you look back and the animal's gone. Yep. But he was there long enough to take a shot yeah. if you would have had, if you would have been ready. And I think being well prepared like that is, is huge. So, you know, again, to me, loading out, uh, again, part of the recoil management in that initial uh, starting process, uh, getting set up, looking at my dope, uh, removing parallax. Now I shoot with uh, scope shadow on every shot. So it also removes parallax if I don't have time to set up there and remove it. I'll remove parallax if I have the time, uh, if, it, if I have the leniency to do that. Uh, if I don't, scope shadow or shooting with scope shadow does the same thing. So what it means is the perception of where your reticle is, is exactly where it is. So it takes care of that for you. And then I'm gonna aim all the way through the shot. So I'm always looking at a major reference point on target. And, and by doing that, it's always, you know, reticle, reticle, reticle as you're pulling the trigger. So you're focused, focused, focused. And, and you always stay cognizant of what the wind's doing. So if, if my baseline wind, like right now where we're setting, is probably 10 mile an hour uh, from the left or maybe, you know, from 10 o'clock, uh, then I would set that up in my mind. But if I started to feel a change, I'm always thinking about what the wind's doing while I'm setting up, pulling the trigger because so many guys get wrapped up they make a wind call and they're gonna shoot it come hell or high water. And we need to be flexible. We need to say, hey, the wind's dying. I'm not gonna shoot 10, I'm gonna shoot eight right now. And we need to be able to flex and know what that wind is, you know, or at least potentially, you know, uh, make those small incremental changes. So I think it's something that's, it's a living, breathing, uh, environment and it's real time and I think too many people get wrapped up in hey I need to do this 27 checklist right. or 27 point checklist and by the time they get ready to take the shot the animal's coming up the next hill in the background again so now they have to redo everything yeah. but it, it becomes useless at a point yeah so I, I think too many guys think the bigger the checklist is the more uh, you know maybe the more seasoned they are uh, and, and I'm I'm very uh, pointed about certain things on my checklist that I want to make sure is I'm, you know, how I'm loading my bipods into my shoulder, my natural point of aim, pushing into the target, uh, removing parallax if I have the time, uh, aiming through the shot. Breathing is not something that I do the way that normal competition shooters do. Uh, I shot competition, we, we take a big deep breath in to oxygenate our eyes. Uh, you let, let it out, take another one in, let half of it out. That's when we, you know, and then shoot on your natural pause. That's competition shooting, that's not hunting, and that's not military. So, uh, you know, the, the wounded ducks, we call them, you know, the little bitty spots in your eyes that as you're losing oxygen that kind of start yep. drifting away, or if you're looking at your reticle, how it can kind of blur out on you and then come back in. Uh, those are things that happen with oxygen loss. Uh, obviously, I haven't seen a, uh, a wounded duck or, you know, had a reticle disappear while we're sitting here talking. So the, the, the point there is I breathe just like, I breathe while I'm shooting just like I breathe when I'm talking. So it's slow breaths out like we are when we're talking and then a slow breath back in. If I have, you know, if I have the time, if, if I may need to, I may take a quicker deep breath in and let it, let it out like I'm talking. So what that does, it gives the same, same capability, but it gives us speed that we need. And, and that's something I think too many people, uh, and, and I, I hate it when I hear, I get behind a guy and he's fixing to take a shot and he takes this big deep breath in and lets a big deep breath out like he's trying to impress everybody around him that he didn't forget to breathe. Yeah. And, and my deal is, well, why didn't you already take the shot? You made your wind call now five minutes ago. 
So the winds change, but it's all because you're going through your 27-point checklist, and that's nearly a guaranteed miss. But he probably made a good wind call before he laid down. He probably would have been a, you know, would have hit more targets that day if he wouldn't have been adamant about going through his self-imposed checklist. Now, I'm not saying any of that's bad, but it needs to be realistic. It needs to be condensed. It needs to be something like, know why you're doing what you're doing. So I would advise people, all right, go through your own checklist, then let it grow based off problems. But condense it, ask yourself, why is number one number one? What is number two? And why is it there? Do I really need it? How could we work around it to where I don't need that part of the checklist? So instead of being the guy that says, hey, you know, you ought to always be growing your checklist because as you get more seasoned, you're gonna have many more things that you become knowledgeable of that you need to take care of, and you will. But you can remove number three and four because nobody has to tell you, hey, point your gun at the target anymore. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's you, like you, rid of you would hope with the practice in some ways, with more you practice, more ingrained it becomes, Absolutely. less of a challenge yeah. it becomes. That it's it's muscle memory, the, the loading process, or certain, or your tri you know, maybe yeah. we shouldn't have to be consciously thinking about the, as much of that trigger because hopefully we've done enough. Practice yeah, I'm not. I, I can't ever. I can't tell you. I've, in the last many years I had to think about my trigger so my trigger because I shoot as much as I shoot my trigger is just a as natural as breathing you know as far as pulling a trigger uh, obviously we're not slapping triggers uh, you know doing stuff like that but it's a it's a slow gentle squeeze that is a surprise break uh, while I'm aiming the whole time that's my trigger control so um I mean, it's something that you, again, you know, it's weird, like my, my involvement is primarily, well, it's shooting, but primarily competition. And there's nothing like putting a 60 or a 90 second time limit buzzer on someone to see how their shooting actually is. Because, like, say, you go to the range, you can sit there all day until everything's comfortable and the wind drops back down and, and everything. But it's like, you know, no, 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 you've got 60 seconds to do this. It won't be perfect when you do it. It's going to be a case of as good as possible. I, I love time constraints. I love, because stress is so involved in most of our shooting, especially in the hunting and, and in the military for those guys uh, and in law enforcement. Most of the time when, when a real shot is taken, there's a lot of stress involved. So uh, the only real way we can put stress on ourselves most of the time is through time limits. So it, it makes you hurry up, make, and, and really it's perfect for, even if it's self-imposed, get a pack timer, set it on two minutes, and then when you start beating the two minute one, start setting it at a second and a half. But what I've noticed is for the, for the long gun shooting as well, you put a time limit on most people, they do the opposite. So you've got five shots, you've got 90 seconds, they'll get them all done in 30 seconds, and you actually have the opposite. You're like, you, you've got more time than you think, slow down. And through observation, the, for competition, the guys who are really good, who are experienced, They'll take all of the time that's available. No yep. more, yep. but if they've got 60 seconds. Well, that's the maturity. So, yeah, so wh wh the, what you'll learn through setting self-imposed time limits on yourself is, you know, I had more time. I could have mm. I could have took a couple more seconds aiming to break the shot. And you know, and it's the same thing in hunting. A lot of times if you're rushed and you get set up and you, you want to hurry and take the shot, but if you'll just pause for a minute, you look around and go, you know, the stag's got another 100 meters before he gets to the wood. Yeah. He's not running, he's not even walking, he's following that hind, he's not, you know, yeah. he's gonna go where she is, he'll present a shot and probably a standing still shot. Be patient, yeah. don't take the trotting shot while he's chasing her uh, if they're all running towards a herd that's still standing yeah. because they may get to them and stop and give you that luxury of a nice still shot. So I think it's maturity, you know, knowing when to slow down, knowing when to say hold, 
Just let it mature, let the shot mature. Every, and then while you're doing that, breathe, relax, reset your position. Instead of being tense the whole time, and now you got lactic acid built up and you're shaking all over the place and you forgot to breathe because, you know. Are you breathing? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, and, and I, like I say, I'm, I, I love hunting. And if, if hunting ever gets to the point that it's not exciting, I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. You know, that's, that's why we go and do it. So it's, uh, but you learn you, you learn how to manage those those situations where when there's excitement you can slow down and, and then you train for it so if you're beating the two second time limit uh, but you're rushed try to learn to slow down and just beat the two second time limit and then put a faster time limit on it but be smooth yeah. smooth is fast yeah. learn make sure you're always smooth and I see guys uh, it's usually poor planning, uh, they get everything set up and they forgot the rear back. So they run back or they reach over, set the gun down, get the rear back, get it set up and they forget the kestrel. Then they reach back and grab the kestrel. And it's just like, be prepared, you know, mentally go through it. But that's what training does. Yeah. You know, it teaches you how to prepare and, and when you make a mistake, learn from the mistake, don't repeat it. But I think that's also an important thing with training is people focus maybe just on that pulling of the trigger. That's their training, that's the training. So well no, the, it's also that setup initially. When yep. you get behind the rifle, where is everything around you? Where's if your notebook or get your pen out, like say where's your kestrel, where's your rangefinder? Yep. Set up your workspace. That's part of your training. Do that. Yep. Put everything away. Do it again. Oh actually it's better if it's just there. Yeah, you know, a lot of times to me it's it's also we're gonna be in the situation when we reach over and grab the kestrel and the kestrel battery dies. Yeah. yeah, I was there a couple of years ago. Uh, took a guy on a hunt, and the battery died. And I always carried two kestrels. Uh, and you know, obviously, if it was on what I call a real hunt, if I would have been down here on the South Island, I would have made sure I had a brand new battery in that yeah. thing that morning. Uh, I wouldn't have walked out with four percent. But it's 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 one of those things. The kestrels stay in my vehicle, and I'll just reach over and grab one. And, and we were set up and running. The kestrel battery died. I had to run back to the truck to get a kestrel. Now through knowing more about what I know. Uh, we've developed new uh, new ways of shooting long range like that. I, I say long range, that was a 700 meter shot that we talked about earlier. But I've developed a new method called speed drop uh, for no other reason than I didn't have time to think about what I wanted to name it, so I just called it speed drop. But, but now I can give you your hold every 10 meters all the way out to A range, which is what we still consider inside speed range. So like uh, with my 300 Norma out to 1200 meters, with a 338 out to 900 meters. Uh, but from 300 to 900, I can tell you drop or every 10 meters based off one number. Yep. So you don't have to remember anything. So I wrote an article, it'll be out in uh, Sniper Magazine this year about speed drop. And it's, it's like with a, uh, 338 will pull with a 300 grain or 250 grain, or uh, it may be a minus two, minus one gun. So when I say minus two, you look at your range at 700, minus two would be five mils. But if we said, all right, now it's 730, minus two, minus one would be 5.2. So it's that fast. Yeah. So, and now as soon as you hear range, you already know you're holding and you take your shot. And you set your limit of accuracy that you want. So you, it, you may be 0.2 mils off, but that's two thirds a minute of angle and it's probably within your capability of the weapon system anyway. If you want more accuracy, uh, it's easier, but your range uh, decreases slightly if you want the 0.1 level accuracy. But again, you know, when we get set up and fast, I tell guys all the time, know what's gonna happen uh, before it happens. So we, we go up and do long range hunting in the evening in, in November, December, and January. And every evening we're on top of a hill shooting at animals anywhere between uh, usually 700 to 2,000 meters, and most of it's past 1,500. But if a coyote shows up on the field, 
we, we always take the coyotes first and the deer don't seem to care when we're shooting at the coyotes so they don't even move. And so we'll set up, but, but the main deal is, like you said, have your workspace done. So know what range the center pivot is, know what range the deer stand is, know what range the, the back fence is, know what range the deer feeder is over there. And then when some, something pops out, you're not stopping and ranging it. Yeah. You know, obviously the rangefinder is attached to the spotting scope. It's, it's, you know, hanging off of it to where we're not running over there to get it out of the pickup and coming back. Set up your workspace, set it up right. Be able to be quick, but with proficiency and accuracy. Uh, efficiency is a huge deal when we're hunting. I, I see a lot of guys miss opportunities just because they weren't prepared. So as I mean, I was going to ask you about, I guess, practice, and I was going to ask you about dry fire, but I would imagine you don't really need to do much in the way of dry fire. You're you know, fire back when I was shooting pistols uh, a lot, especially back cowboy action stuff, yeah. I would dry fire three hours a night every night. So in the pistol world, dry fire is more important than anything. I, I do. If you had me teach somebody how to shoot pistol, and we had two people, and I had to train them differently, I would have one dry fire three hours a night and I would have another guy shoot 2,000 rounds a day. And I would nearly bet you money the dry fire guy's gonna beat it when we yeah. shoot a competition in a month. And the reason why is you don't see the mistakes you make when you live fire, but you do when you dry fire. Now, rifle shooting, uh, I, I like dry firing a rifle usually the first couple of times just to know the trigger. Uh, if I know my gun, I don't need to dry fire it anymore. Yeah. So if I was, you know, if I was borrowing a gun here down in New Zealand and was fortunate enough to get to go out on a hunt, first thing I'd do is I'd lay down. When I, once we got to the hunting area, I'd lay down, pre-pulling the trigger on an animal, I would dry fire and just make sure I knew when the gun was going to break. Uh, triggers are strange animals, you know, they can be hard to pull, they can be way too light, they can be a little bit of everything. So. Uh, but once you know what it is, it is what it is. So I'm a big fan of dry firing, knowing where your reticle goes when you dry fire. It tells you a lot about the pressure yep. points that you that you have on your hand or shoulder or something. So it, it's something that uh, I don't practice anymore. Uh, per se, it's like, I'm not gonna tell you I dry fire a thousand rounds a week. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, but if I borrowed a gun, I would definitely yeah, dry yeah. fire it probably 10 Well, times. like you say, get used to that trigger. It's I'm, I'm currently reviewing one of the Tick of the Tack A1s. And part of it for me Amazing was, guns. part of it was because it's a um, two-stage trigger. Yeah. I've traditionally so, uh, shot single for field and uh, on a Remington, and I don't want to go any lighter on that because it's a single. I don't, yeah. I don't want a bench rest trigger. I've shot them, I would not take one into a field. Yeah. What caliber are you shooting? For the... Uh, 6.5. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I, I had, you know, and I needed to go and shoot a 6.5 Creed because I had other guys had it. So, but same thing is I also, I lightened that trigger down the second stage as possible because I, that's why I wanted to try But I then spent a couple of evenings dry firing it because it was way lighter than I was used to. First couple of times on an empty chamber, yes, I had a few what would have been indies. Yeah. If I was actually at a roundup to spout, but by the time I got out there and shot in the field, I was now used to it, and now yeah. it's going to be hard to go back to my room. That's going to be the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the, the the dry fire point of it. It's just yeah, like you say, at least knowing the system. The the other part of that then, uh, beyond like for practicing for a lot of us, I think the big thing most guys who are shooting out in the field can do. The, one of the best things I think they could do is practice calling the wind rather yeah. than being reliant on the kestrels. Um, well, what we teach here is calibrate yourself. Yeah. So uh, I don't want you to get out and pull out your kestrel, look at it, and then go, okay, that's eight mile hour. What, what I want you to do is get out of, out of the vehicle, you know, look at the wind, 
put your hands up, kind of feel the wind, get a feel of what it's doing on your face. Really try to guess like your, you know, your life was dependent on it. What is that wind right now? Why do I think it's that? Calibrate yourself and then take your Kestrel out and go, okay, I guessed eight, it's only blowing six, but now you go, all right, that's six. Do that several times a day. Do that until actually when you guess, you're shocked when you don't guess within a mile an hour of what the wind's doing. So I do that with the military guys. So starting out, they'll get out of the vehicles, I'll go, all right, what's the wind? And they'll be like, shit, it's blowing. You know, and it's, so yeah, it's, we were it's, it's, yeah it's, it's blowing. So what, how much do you think it's blowing? And they'll go, I don't know, 25? And I'll go, all right, what do you think it's doing? And we'll talk through it and yeah. then it'll be like, all right. So it's probably only around 20, 21, you know, gusting to maybe 23. So pull up your castle and look at it. And sure enough, I, I've lived in West Texas all my life where wind is an everyday occurrence. Yeah. So it, it's something I've calibrated myself to, but that is also next level when the guys come out and they leave their Kestrel in the vehicle and they shoot the wind course with known ranges and because they know their gun, they know their hold and they're guessing wind. To me, that's that's the epitome of where we should be. Uh, you had, the Kestrel is an amazing tool. It's, uh, you know, with with applied ballistic, ballistic engine in it, it gives us the speed and the accuracy and the density altitude and the wind all wrapped up in a little package, which is an amazing tool. Uh, but it's a tool, not a crutch. So we need to use it as a tool. So we need to be able to, I always tell the guys, we need to be able to do the job without it, but use it for speed and accuracy. Yeah. So too many guys, if they left their Kestrel in their vehicle and run out to shoot you know, a stag on top of a hill and forgot their Kestrel, they wouldn't even know what to do. Yeah. You know, they, they would be totally lost. And I'm not saying you know, just stag here down in New Zealand, it's anywhere in the world in the United States. Most hunters, if they run down the hill, like, all right, hey, where's, oh, I, did, hey, I, got, I don't know where my Kestrel's at. They'd be lost on what their hold was. Uh, they wouldn't know what the winds was. They wouldn't know what wind call, you know, to make. And so that was one of the initial reasons I started making the trimmer reticles was uh, to give a guy capability of knowing winds without doing any math. So now if he just memorized his holes, which now speed drop does that for us. Uh, now I know my hold. Well, I know my hold. I know my wind because it says there it's four, eight, 12 mile hour. So it's like, all right, I think it's between eight and 10. Look down there and go, well, I have eight and 12 mile hour dots on his kills zone so go ahead and pull the trigger yeah. i'm good so well, but it, it's been interesting and i've i've gone through it and i'm, I'm again so much more to learn but I've, I've sort of observed you get to this point where you get every single gadget that you possibly can and then you kind of it was what really got me going talking to another friend of mine christian we were watching um some of thomas's norway thlr out of norway and the same thing they are they're in the process like you simplifying 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 so it's almost this process I think a lot of people go through of trying to get every single crutch that they can and then realizing it's taking them half an hour yep. to come up with yep. a solution and I, I did it the same thing I grabbed a Kestrel because it's like, oh sweet or well, I won't have to learn to read wind I can just use a Kestrel yep. and then one day like like you said it's like now one of the last times we went out shooting there was a group of us we sat on top of a hill we all wrote down our guesses for distance and wind and then got the Kestrels out and that was probably more beneficial to the shooting than it would have been going through two boxes of ammunition and not thinking about it. Absolutely. It's the same way that we teach uh, milling targets. So in the military, uh, guys would sit down and mill targets uh, the way it'd basically be set up. They'd put an E-top in the back of a Humvee and drive out on the range and then the guys would mill it and they'd go out and drive a little farther and they'd do that five times and they'd come back in two days and say, all right, y'all suck. You're going to fail if you don't get better at this. Uh, but they gave a milling class that was in the classroom, but it was not, it was a good class, but it wasn't a good class for a beginner. 
So what, what I started doing uh, to prove a proof, proof of concept, we did 38 classes for the U.S. military with guys that had not shot scopes before. And we took them out, we gave them a trimmer three reticle, gave them a ballistic engine, the Kestrels, and taught them how to shoot groups the first day and made them meal targets all afternoon. Uh, the next morning, shoot groups all day. The next afternoon, meal and shoot based off what they milled it. But the first day, I numbered all the targets uh, and I would say, all right, meal every target. And they'd meal them and then I'd go, all right, target number two, what'd you get? And everybody would tell me and I'd say, all right, that target meals 0.63. So if you're off more than 0.03, I want you to re-meal the target right now. Lay down, turn around. And whatever you have to do to make it B.63, do that. So I said, this isn't an argument. This, you will it make is. it read 0.63 because guys go, there's no way it's 0.63. I can't make it. I, if The only way I can see 0.63 is if I do this. I said, whatever that was, do that the rest of the yeah. time you're here. So, and what we call it is calibrating your eye. So by doing 10 targets, and this is one of the things I see in, in, a lot of times in the military, they go through sniper school, they learn how to meal, but there's still limited time that they get to shoot. So when the guys go out and they book a range, they get still put up. They don't want to set their mill targets. They don't want to waste two hours, you know, milling targets when they get very limited training time, you know, because they do so many other things. Yeah. And then once they lay down, it's like, hey, I want to shoot all day. I don't want to mill targets. So they lose that skill set. And, and I noticed that when I put them on a course of fire that is milling and shooting, uh, they suffer a lot worse than when I give them ranges. And, it, and it's really a known distance if you know how to meal. So uh, what, what I tell them is recalibrate your at least four targets every day. So if you hit the range, I want you to first mill it, and then I want you to range it, and then you go into your Kestrel and you change your image size until the range equals what it really ranges, and look at the image size. And you think it's 500, but it shows up being 0.65. Well, well now you go, well, 0.6 is 500, so 0.65 is like 460. And so you go back in and you go, ah, okay, it's 460. So now you go, and the target is milled properly, so now you say, Okay, that's 0.65. I can see it 0.65 now, so you go to the next target. So now you've maintained your skill set with four targets. But it didn't take long. You go out there and you, you mill it first, take a guess, then you actually range it, and then you change the image size till it shows that range. That's the size it is, no argument. Yeah. Make it read that. Do that four times, now we've recalibrated our brain. So it, it works and it keeps us good, and we're not wasting time. You can do this in five minutes. So, and then you spend all day shooting. Which wins are the number one reason that we need to keep practicing? <laughs> the more they do it, the more I do it, the more I realize it's just like, yeah, everything else is good. It's always going to be win. Oh, it's always going to be win. Um, uh, another question here, which is again, uh, no, it's relevant to everything. What we're now pushing this whole idea of the recoil management and getting behind the rifle so that a big part of it, so you can see your hits, so you can see your misses. So is there any tips or suggestions what you can, if you're in a situation where you just simply can't see your misses either, and the understanding that... Yeah, you may be shooting in an area that there's heavy uh, vegetation yeah. where there's no, the ground's wet, heavy vegetation, you're not going to be able to see uh, impacts. Again, uh, that's one of the hardest environments, that's when you'd want a spotter, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I, I teach heavy single shooter, no spotters. Yeah. Uh, I also teach heavy spotters because when you, when you when you have a course fire that is heavy spotter related, the spotter learns more than the shooter. So you, he, you remove the uh, performance portion of his day, and now all he has to do is just go out and call wins and spot, and he gets better. So I have three problems in my class. 
Number one problem uh, is parallax. All right, people don't understand it enough and don't fix it good enough most of the time because most time in my world, the military, their eyes are young and their, their eye changes so fast, it's hard for to, to remove parallax completely out of their scope for them. Uh, the next one's canning of the rifle. So we're shooting without bubble levels. Uh, more wind calls are missed, not because they made a bad wind call, but because they were canned when they shot. Number three, spotting. So guys suck at spotting. And you know, they see the bullet, they see a portion of the trace, they see plume, but they didn't see the strike, which was well below the plume. The plume blows up in the air and gets sheared off and they go, oh, there it is. But it's not down there where the actual impact was. So I see spotting is probably the number three problem that we have uh, with, with long range shooting. Now you remove that, uh, like you said, put them in an area that, you know, there is none of that, the, the spotter was a huge portion of that shot to be able to, to see trace and watch trace. And, and we've talked trace wrong for years. So we, we, you know, in the military, they say, all right, focus on the target, back out a quarter turn and look up. And that's, that's yeah. spotting class. So, and, and that's absolutely wrong. We know where the bullet is at all times. So there's not an option. The bullet doesn't get to vote. So we should never back out on target. You should be focused on target the whole time. The backing out a quarter turn was to move you back to max ord. So the, the actual bullet would have been in focus and the trace or refraction of light would have been in focus at the mid ranges, you know, where the bullet's reaching max ord. And really where that band is, the bullet looks like it's hanging in space because it's in about a three inch bail and it's rising arc and downward arc. So in that period, that's where we focus back to. That's only for the guys to be able to see it the first time. After that, you should have never backed out because if you know what trace is, you're gonna be able to see it focused on the target. And then on those days where impact is minimal, you can see impact if you're focused there, but if you're backed out and you're blurry, you'll never see it. So uh, that's something that we've worked hard to change in the military is get that old rule out of there. You should never back out a quarter turn ever nowadays. We don't even teach it to start. So since we know where Trace is, halfway the target plus 10% of the half, so 800, 440 would be exactly where Trace is, exactly within 10 meters of where Trace is gonna happen. Uh, know your hold for the target, subtract your range for, for the range of where your max order is gonna be. So if, if it's 800 and 440, you're taking nine mils, subtract three mils, your trace is gonna happen six mils above the target. If you're gonna hit the target, it doesn't have an option. It has to be six mils. So look, focus six mils and boom, there it is. So it's, it's easier to see trace uh, and it's easier to train to see trace without having a lot of the old uh, techniques that were failure points for guys because they'd try them and then they'd lose impact. They saw trace, but they said, and I always heard, I had it, I had it, and I lost it. Right. Well, you lost it at the most important time. Yeah. Doesn't matter, you saw it halfway. <laughs> you, you didn't see it when I needed it. So, it, get back to your question. That's one of the hardest points because uh, without it, you had to look at the math side. What was the highest probability of my miss? Uh, was it potential range? If it was a range problem, I'm thinking high and low. If it was wind, like normal, I'm thinking, did I feel the wind gust? I'm gonna add some more wind and take a shot. So we have to look at the math of what happened. Did the wind lull? Maybe I need to take off a little bit and take a shot. But obviously that's that's one of the hardest environments yeah. to shoot in as far as gaining knowledge after the shot. I, mean, I had recently with the, the ticker, we shot it out to six and I was going further, but it was me by myself. I was shooting essentially on um, uh, uh, yeah, trails, so we didn't have a lot of area around yeah. the Sierra Mist, and in the end, I stopped because I couldn't see it. So I could have just emptied out the magazine and not learnt anything. 
and afterwards getting back working I was using a different calculator as part of the I thought I might as well change everything at once why not do it that way just to yeah. make it hard on myself and realised that was a couple of mil out from where it should have been mm. anyway so I was, I was never going to see it it wasn't even close um, but I, I consider myself lucky that early in the piece I was not for I was asked but I was essentially forced to spot for a very good shooter and I remember him taking a shot and he would stop until I called his correction for him and he'd seen it, he knew damn well where it had yeah, actually yeah. gone, but he's like, I just want to know, forcing you to make a decision and, and, and yeah. call it, you know? And again, it was one of those days I probably learned more behind the sure. spotting script. Sure. always. Than, we always yeah. learn more, I think, behind the spotting script than yeah. we do by pulling the trigger. So, yeah, I, I encourage everyone, it's the same thing we have as, um, oh, I don't know, I need to practice more spotting as well, but I enjoy it. Oh, yeah. I think that's the other Oh, I'm, I'm very fortunate because I, that's what I get to do. I get to spot every day. So I'm gonna, I live on a spotting ship. I actually, people think, you know, your job's awesome. You go all over the world and you, and you shoot all day, every day. And I'm like, no. Don't shoot much. Yeah, so, I'm, you know, I, I do have to travel all over the world and I, I never get to see any of it because I'm always on a range somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so, but other than that, yeah, I'm not on the trigger very much at all anymore. So usually I'm, I'm always, Nearly excited when a gun has a problem because I get to shoot the gun to see what kind of problem. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, bring me a mag so I get to shoot a little bit. Um, so a, a couple of, and I guess because of what you're doing, this sort of answers itself. But the other question is, when you're when you're back in the states, are you now shooting mainly factory ammo or reload? Uh, no, most most of the time I'm am shooting only factory ammo yeah. because I'm testing for companies. Okay. So uh, we've worked with Ruag and Lapua and Hornady and Berger and uh, Corbon and of course Prime is yeah. Ruag and yeah. uh, but a lot of the different ammo companies will send me ammo to test. Yeah. So most of my ammo, unless I'm dealing with a Wildcat like my seven millimeter 300 Norma. Uh, which I would have to load yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. So, but most of the time I'm shooting factory ammo because we're always doing testing. Yep. And it's something you notice, obviously you watch guys over in the state shooting, a lot more guys are shooting the factory ammo because it's probably also got up in quality mm. compared to where it used to be, you'd have to reload to get the most out yeah, of it. Yeah, and, and if I'm And we, we're still lagging, in New Zealand we're still lagging a little bit. We don't have Prime down here, for example, or a lot of those, the premium size. It, to be honest, if I was shooting competition, I'd still reload. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, it depends on the amount of time one has, uh, and if nowadays there is quality ammo that you could shoot competition with. Yeah. Uh, myself, knowing the variables that are in play, I would still I would still load my own ammo uh, if I was shooting competitions. Uh, long range hunting, uh, we shoot factory ammo, but it's been tested and it's very good. No, if exactly, it, if yeah. it wasn't, I would definitely be loading my own ammo for that. It's something I've done recently, the next article we're putting out is comparing the, because I went out at Crony, did the SD on a pile of um, the uh, Hornaday match yep. compared to what would be my reload. Well, I didn't have 6.5 dies anyway, so I wasn't going to reload for it. But but yeah, it was interesting going through that process of comparing it, but relating it back to what we were actually shooting. So. When I first got this and people were talking about 6.5 crude, they're like, well, how's it going to shoot out at 1.5k? I'm like, well... That's very the, well. <laughs> yeah, but, but more so, the point of this rifle for the competitions I'm going to go to, most of the targets are between 6 and 9, yeah. so it's consideration, but I'm not, that's not my focus sure. on it. So it was a case of, of looking at this factory ammo for that distances for guys going out and the SD variants, everything. Is yeah, like, and that's just Actually, that's, yeah. that's, that's... So you're... Acceptable. It, it, your SDs are usually refined enough, normally, 
uh, to stay on at that distance, uh, your extreme spreads are not. Yeah. So your extreme spreads are gonna take you off target, but your, like I say, your standard deviation, your 90 percentile will still stay on target. Uh, the biggest point there is make sure guys understand the math and know what their extreme spreads are so they're not moving uh, based off an errant round. Yeah. So if you shoot, say at uh, 1.5K and you're just off the left shoulder and your next shot is just off right, maybe hip, uh, as far as elevation, and your next shot's a half mil high, don't come down a half a mil. Leave it, that's your high round. Leave it alone, it didn't happen. Yep. You know, re-engage. And too many people say, all right, hey, come down a half mil. You know, and so the spotter yells out, come down a half mil. And it's like, stop, do not come down a half a mil. Re-engage. And he says, hey, but I saw it, yeah, I did too. <laughs> don't move a guy once we know he's good. Yep. Extreme spreads, highs and lows, we forget because you have to be, you have to understand ballistics well enough. Otherwise, 90% of his next rounds are gonna be low. So I would never move him off a potential, you know, something inside of his SD and to make it to where he had to have another high extreme spread to hit the target. So it now, the problem is uh, in real world. So now you take a shot and we're shooting, let's say when we say five, 600 meters, even our extreme spreads are on the target, so we don't have to worry about it there. But let's say we're shooting 1,300 meters, and then your first round, and we're shooting hunting this evening, your first round's high, maybe 0.3 mils. Should you come down 0.3 mils? You know your math's good. You know you've tried to account for everything. Should you come down? Absolutely, because there's one bullet out there. We, we only have that known. Yeah. So is there a good chance we're gonna miss low? Yeah. There, there's a chance. I'm not gonna say it's good, but there's a chance. Now, when the next round misses low, now we know what we did and we know what we did wrong. Yeah. So now we can move back and be comfortable that we're probably gonna be good on the next round. Uh, but that's the hardest one. So when you take that first shot and you miss high or low, and it's at distances where extreme spread can really mess with you, uh, you have to be mature enough to make, and, and we're gonna have to probably go ahead and make the correction, full correction. But after we your next round goes, now we have a group size that we're continuing with. And if the next round was actually in my normal pattern, that now, I forget the high round. All right, so I would normally split the two and be in between those. But if I have high confidence level in, in that second round, as far as being correct with my estimations, uh, that is now my primary and I look at minute of angle based off that. So when you're evaluating ammunition as part of a system now, are you, how much weight are you giving, say, the group size at 100 versus the SD and ES? Okay, it, it seems so, to be the further we go out... Yeah, the SD and ES at, at 100 is nothing because yeah. they're not changing. Sometimes your fastest round can be the lowest bullet yeah. printed on paper at 100. Uh, I'm a huge fan that we actually check weapon systems for capability at 100. Uh, when, when the ASR program came to my house and looking at selecting caliber and weapons and this kind of stuff, uh, the government engineers wanted to shoot groups at 1500 meters because it's a 1500 meter gun. I said, you can't do that. Yeah. And they said, why not? It's a 1500 meter gun. I said, you don't have 1500 ammo. So if, if we had half minute of angle ammo at 1500 meters, yes, bring all the guns in, we'll test them. Yeah. But I said, if you have a half minute gun at 100, your gun's a half minute gun. Now, you're shooting half minute, the gun's shooting half minute, it's proven it's capability at 100. Now, the further we go out, it's ammo. So if we go to 700 and now you have 45 feet per second extreme spread, you're over a minute capable now. Yeah. So if you go to 1,000 meters, you're two and a third minute capable now. 
extreme spread. So that's going to be the size of your group. So when you have a flyer, it's like, oh man, I had a flyer. That's just ammo. Yeah. So it may not have even been used. So you have to understand the math of ballistics to, to make those decisions. So I'm not, uh, I'm a huge fan of shooting 100 meter groups for known capability of the weapon systems when I'm testing. When I'm testing ammo, ammo is pretty easy. Uh, once we sit down and test standard deviations and extreme spreads, we kind of know what it's capable of. Mm. So if I'm dealing with single digit standard deviations and extreme spreads of 15, I'm happy. Yep. If I'm uh, over 20 on standard deviation and I'm you know, above 50 on extreme spread, that's not long range ammo. Mm. I'm not happy anymore. Mm. So, and then you, you can convert that real easy. So you take a Kestrel and you plug in uh, like 2,800 feet per second on your 6.5. And then same BC, but plug in 2850 and just compare the two yep. side by side. When do you change over a minute of angle? Mm. And that's, we'll show you real quick what 50 feet per second extreme spread is gonna do your group sizes. So this is a minute of angle different than this one. Pass that, you're not capable of a minute of angle because when you reach in that box and get that one bullet out, you don't know if it's your fast <laughs> round or your slow round. So unfortunately, we had to play the math all the time, yeah. but be knowledgeable with it. Uh, so I had AMU Army Marksmanship Unit at the house the other day, getting ready for a comp. They joined up, you know, did strap hanging deal with another military group. And uh, I asked them, I said, all right, I know who loads your ammo because it's an individual in the house there with them. And I said, what do y'all consider bad for extreme spread? And they said, 15. And I said, these guys don't even have 15 for standard deviation, much less extreme spread. But that's why AMU does what they do yeah. and wins the competitions that they win. So kind of back to your other point, uh, if you have good quality ammo, you can kind of do it. But it's, it's very important. Again, it goes back to that whole knowledge piece that we talked about earlier. If you're making a decision on what is the true capability of you shooting a deer at distance, long range hunting, yeah. you better have the ammo that's capable. Otherwise, you're rolling the dice. So if somebody said, no, I'm comfortable, you know, one, one and a half K, 100% of the time I'll take the shot and we shoot his gun and he's got 60 feet per second extreme spread. Wrong, yeah, bad answer. Yeah. Well, it's been good because I got the, the applied ballistics, the desktop suite with the WES or the weapon employment zone yep. calculation, yep. and I got Coldball with the error budget, and it's it's enlightening whether they read it and they just ignore it because they just want to shoot long oh, range anyway. But, but you run that with a guy and you go, look, we're gonna. I'll even introduce the minimum variance of your ability to ring. Have you got a rangefinder with you? Uh, well, we'll just say yeah. that you're able to, and then put SD of the ammo and everything, and then, like you say, you get that chart that comes out that uh, beyond this distance, no matter what you do, you're shooting wider than six inches, eight inches, whatever yeah. your perceived thing is, and it's often a lot shorter oh, than think. people realize. Yeah. And then you say, this is what you do, we'll take you out, we'll pretend you're doing everything perfectly, Perfect. not yeah. breathing hard, not... Yeah. Your weapon system by itself is not capable, is not capable of doing it. Yeah. So, so, and it's really smart. So, once you look at the the Wes program, you can take your ammo that is known. So, you go shoot through a chrono and says, "Hey, this is what you're shooting," and then you take your ability. Let's say you call wind perfect, and let's say that you're a perfect shooter. Just looking at your ammo, you can go, you know, I really shouldn't take a, a shot past 600 with this ammo. Yeah. So, and it, it, you may shoot half minute gun you know i have people all the time they tell me oh todd we, we got a gun we want you to shoot it's quarter minute of angle and i go yeah <laughs> all right so you brought this on yourself so this is what i want you to do so if you just said half minute i would have said hey send it to me and i'll play with it but you said it was a quarter so this is what i want you to do i said 10 shot groups yeah 10 10 groups on one piece of paper send it to me and then send me your gun if it's a quarter minute no in 14 years i've never seen <laughs> one piece of paper 
much less a gun from that company because the reality is they don't have that capability. Yeah. Everybody shoots three shots yeah. and then covers up their flyer with a dime and well, takes they, a picture of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that becomes a problem. And, and, you know, so the reality is that would be the first place I'd start with a system that's like, hey, I want to go long range hunting this evening. What is my ammo capable of? And you know, and we, we may actually try to go out this evening and, and bounce around or, or you know, sometime this week. But I won't take a long range shot because I, you know, I don't have a chrono and I don't have the knowledge of what that ammo uh, is that we're going to be using. I didn't bring my own weapon system and that kind of stuff. So it's, I, I, don't, I don't think it would be ethical, you know, out playing now. If we put out a piece of steel at 2,200 meters, be happy to sure. swing at it. Yeah, you know, that's right. so. and that's why I encourage guys to take up the competition shooting because they can do all that, get yeah. a little reality check of no, even with I've thrown all this money at a at a firearm, got everything, still doesn't mean I'm going to hit. There's yeah. still additional work to do. Um, yeah. It's a good start, but but, yeah, but I think the way this program's awesome because it shows you. And, and like I say, you don't have to go out and have the weapons or the, the WES program. You can take a Kestrel and say, build a gun and then go shoot through a chrono and go, hey, this is my extreme spread. Yeah. Build another gun with that deviation or that delta in, in velocity. So if you're running 2800 but your extreme spread's 50, build a 2850 in and as soon as you get past minute of angle, you're done. So that's the capable of your capability of what you have right now it's nothing against you it's not you know it's not a slam maybe get into reloading or buy different ammo you get but you get all the pretty graphics by using the yeah, yeah, software yeah, yeah, though yeah. that then you can put up on your blog oh, yeah, you I, see? I, I, I wasted probably uh, um, oh, at least the easy week of my life the first time i got yeah. the wes program just because i got to play with ballistics but it's awesome then you go so what if you yeah. know reduce everything okay i range it five meters out what will that actually oh okay but all the time i always look at all the errors and then it comes back to oh well it's wind yeah. That's going to be my biggest variance. Yeah. Oh, it always is. So, so um, at the moment, I mean, you're, so you're, uh, I guess the, the next question is, what's your, I don't know, it won't be one, but you're shooting a lot of the 300 Norma at the moment. Yeah. Um, you're also, I read, which might have been a while ago as well, but you were talking about a 260 um, as a, sort of one of your favorite picks yeah. cartridge-wise. Yeah. Now, is that still the same? Like, sort of, what are you enjoying shooting? What are you shooting? So, in, in my world right now, uh, I would say I could nearly get by with three guns, all right? So, the three guns, 300 Norma being my big gun. Uh, and then, well, let's back it up and we'll talk through several calibers. Yeah. So the 300 Norma is my favorite long range gun. I'm not for sure if it may be replaced by my 7mm 300 Norma because I can shoot a 755 BC and a G1 at 33, 3400 feet per second. So it's a barrel burner though, so it's not a fun toy. Uh, probably 700 rounds a barrel. So. But my 300 Norma or something like that, and I know there's a lot of other calibers that are getting close and, and doing stuff, that's fine. It's just, you know, big long range, high BC, high muzzle Uh Next down, I'd pick a 300 Win Mag shooting the 230 Burger, 215, because, you know, if you compare the ballistics with a like 2850 muzzle with a uh, 230 Burger, it matches all the 338 Lapua, even 300 Grainer high BCs, because I'm nearly there with them on BCs at a 0.74, but I'm faster at 2850 than that 300 pushing at 2650. So now, without the recoil, and we call it a warm-up gun, because in, in the States, 
I can get 300 Win Mag ammo yeah, anywhere. That's, that's always a big thing. Yeah. Down for us, we're down the South Island. I forgot my ammo. Yep. So it, it, it's a gun that if I if I carried my 300 Norma down there, I'm not buying ammo on the yeah. South Island period for yeah. it. So, but if I got a 300 Win Mag, I'm probably get ammo. Yeah. So to, we call it Walmart guns, but only because of the accessibility of the ammo. It's not a degrading, you know, yeah. uh, point. We're just saying that it's a great weapon system good ballistics and you can also buy cheap ammo if you want to go plink around and play yeah. you know at maybe after you've killed something and you want to stay up and shoot rabbits you don't have to shoot your six dollars around yeah. ammo doing that or going out and shooting a competition just for fun uh, learning to call wind you don't have to spend high dollar ammo to do that as well so 300 wind mags uh great for that and then we get into like a 260 i think 260 or 6.5 creed they're twin sisters ballistically um I'm a huge fan of 260 in the gas gun because the slight angle of the shoulder, not shoulder, slight angle of the case has less propensity for malfunctions than a 6.5 Creed in a gas gun because as it expands, everything has to track back equally uh, on time to make sure it doesn't have a malfunction on a 6.5 Creed. Uh, just the physics of it, the, the 260, you're able to push tolerances a little bit more and still have it extract easier and it's a 65308 so 308's been around in the gas gun yeah. forever so it's, we're not trying to learn something new or do something new uh so a huge fan of 65 creed and 260 even for hunting uh out to a thousand uh i think they're a great gun uh i'm, I'm not a fan of 308 but i tell guys every week they say hey what should we bring and i said bring your 308 uh and they go well we're thinking about bringing our big guns and i'm like yeah i bring them but Let's shoot most of the time with our 3.8s because yeah. you learn more. You have to work. So you got to work for the hits. Don't let BCs and yeah. you know muzzle velocity get hits for you. Learn to be a better shot. So you know you, you have to call in so much better with 3.8 to get a hit. Therefore, I'm a huge fan of a 3.8 for a training tool. But that's it. That's where 3.8 yeah. stops with me. Uh, and then I'm a big fan as well with uh, 5.56 for what it gives me capability-wise, uh, aerial platform shooting. Uh, as far as number of rounds that it can carry in the magazine, uh, what that weapon system can do. But the number one thing, like you mentioned earlier, it's what do we want? So are you, are you shooting an animal with it? Well, you need something that does its job on tissue. So everybody goes, well, 5.56 five, won't work. Well, what bullet are you shooting? Because I have several bullets that work very, very well on tissue, and we're not shooting an animal four and five times. So yeah. some, some rounds work better than others. So again, we need to select, uh, the bullet is our number one. So when the military came to the house and they said, okay, you know, we're looking for something long range. I said, all right, intentions on target, what do you want? We have to, obviously we're shooting at people. So we're, we're want to make sure we have expansion on target. Uh, we're not shooting steel, we're not shooting paper. Yep. So it, let, let's just say we're hunting. So in a hunting world, I don't want, certain bullets because they may hit but they're not going to expand and they're going to go through like an ice pick so a lot of ammunition people get out and look hey well what's one matches well it really doesn't matter what's one a match i want to know what expands on tissue expensive. must be good yeah yeah so <laughs> the next step is they go well i want a high bc well high bc they're correct there i have to hit the target to, to make my expanding bullet do something so you can go down the wrong road and say well i want the best expansion bullet there is on, on you know on the market, but that bullet has a horrible BC. So now you're limited inside 200 to be able to shoot anything with it. But what we did, we went out and picked the highest BC. So me and uh, a couple of gentlemen from the G8 went around and at SHOT Show got the highest BCs uh, in 30 cal. 
and we walked across and picked up everything. Then we shot everything through Doppler. Then out of what was the top in the Doppler test for BC, we put it in the uh, terminal ballistic testing. And then out of that, a selection was made. But we really selected the highest probability of hitting something with the highest probability of getting it what the what we wanted for ter uh, the terminal ballistics. So it, it's it's something, and, and it, the hunters should go about it the same way. So they should say, hey, I need a high, or I need something that's good for terminal ballistics, but in a high BC. So that should be how you determine, and then you, you know, that should be how you determine your bullet, and then you turn your load by extreme spread and standard deviation. Well, again, it goes back to that idea of, of instead of working from gun forward, it's almost from end result backwards, Absolutely. which leads us to yep. a projectile, which probably leads us to a cartridge, which will then lead us to probably a firearm system. Yep. And then some people even say your grip and your stock and everything almost is a dressing around the delivery system Correct. as well. Correct. So, yes. Yeah, it's the same same like you said about the stock. Uh, so now we, we've selected the reamer, we've selected... Uh, the twist rates, so to optimize that bullet. Yep. So now it's not, you know, we're not having companies show up with a 10 twist 300 Norma, you know, and it may be the best gun on the planet for what we're wanting, but now it's not gonna be selected because it had the wrong twist rate. Yep. So we made sure that the companies had a, a formula or a uh, recipe for success. They said, hey, use eight twists, use this streamer, uh, with this information, you'll be able to make a gun because there was m many of them that we knew that were on the market or not on the market that had sold. A lot of friends of mine were shooting the exact same thing. We had never seen a bad one made. Everybody's gun was awesome. So that's what that's the way we went into is like, if you'll do this, we know you can make a gun that's quality uh, or if you can make a gun, this will give it what we're wanting. So that, that's basically how we ended up. And we know now that when the soldiers get to test, they're just going to be testing to see what furniture they like. Yeah. How, do, how does this gun carry? How does the shootability? What's the recoil management on it? So all that stuff is the shooter assessment. But now they're not going like, I like this one, but this one shoots so much better group-wise. We don't want that. We want all of them to shoot. Yeah. And so we, we help the companies understanding what it would take to get it to shoot. Because in, previously, too many of the times we go, hey, you know, this is what we want. We want a, a minute of angle gun and whatever caliber just you know we, we it's gotta it's gotta reach a thousand yeah. and then they go is it that's it there's no more guidelines well what else is there you know do you want it folding and I, if you got one that folds bring it and the, and the the companies drive themselves up a wall on that because they don't know we want to take that away this reamer this yeah. twist rate we legally we can't tell them which barrel we want or sure. or that kind of stuff but it has to be able to fold so there was there was a big list of what we wanted on there so, and that seems to be always evolving too. So, uh, I'm just, I am just aware of your, your time. What, what else is in the future for you? Is it just more training? Have you got more work with Forest, new reticles coming out? Yeah, we've got more reticles. I've got the, <laughs> a lot. time to get this stuff yeah, done. Yeah, we've, we've got uh, the T8 line. Uh, I developed the Trimmer 8 uh, a couple of years ago, and we've been involving it more into a hunting marketplace. Sure. So, more for the average guy, uh, ballistic dots on a meal-based reticle with wind dots, but not as busy. Uh, ballistic dots only to 600 where density altitude really starts changing things. And, and we don't want to give a guy a tool like a ACOG that goes out to 800 meters. It's 
only good at one point in the world. Yeah. Uh, where density altitude allows it to be good, that's at sea level. So what we wanted to make sure is the guys, we gave them information out to the point that uh, they could use it and it wouldn't be wrong. And then past that point, they got to do something different, yeah, go back okay. to meals. Yep. So it still is a reticle they can grow with, but uh, it also is more reticle that, you know, for hunting out the 600, uh, which is a majority of hunting in the mm -hmm. States, uh, probably 300 in 90 percentile, you know, yep. and then we have the group maybe 600 in, uh, but still it, it, it's kind of not rare, but it's as far as when you look at how many millions of people hunt in the United States, what percentage wise does anything over a thousand, it's it's tiny. Yeah. So, but we wanted to give a reticle, give them the same capability that we enjoy as you know, long range shooters with the trimmer reticles, with the wind dots and the speed and the ease of, of the wind dots and what it does for them. So that's, that's the next line. It'll be ballistically driven, obviously, so there'll be choices of reticles that they can pick up. Uh, but it falls all under my patent with the uh, wind dots. Yep. So, uh, and then I have a, a new design of a turret uh, that is unique as far as capability-wise. So it's, uh, that will be probably coming out, I hope, in this next year. Mm -hmm. And then other than that, uh, we're doing stuff with drones, with winds. And, yep. and so we're, I work with the government in an entity called Technical Support Working Group. It's the R&D of DOD and I, and I consult with them. And so I, I have this idea of being able to, well, I, I've been a pilot since I was 18 years old, so we, we can do the math on how long ago that was. <laughs> but uh, for a good while now, I've been a pilot, so about 36 years. So it gives me the capability to look at wind differently than most. That's where you know I started looking more at orographic winds and catabatic winds. So that's more of a, a pilot thing than shooters. I, I never found a shooter that understood what an orographic or catabatic wind was that wasn't a pilot already. And so that was where I learned about it. So I brought that into the shooting side. Uh, but there, in most of my airplanes, so we... Uh, I do a lot of flying and, and have several planes. So the, the planes all have crosswind components, you know, in them. They tell me what it is as I'm flying. So I'm thinking, well, if it can do it here, why can't we do it in the drone and why can't I see it? So when we're sh shooting 2000 meter shots, uh, we have a device that it, it's kind of like a GPS to where the soldiers can see kind of what's going on around them and they can drop a pin. Well, it will give them distance to that, to that pin well, if we gave them distance to the pin, but we also gave them that distance in a meal hold for the weapon system that they selected and a real-time wind call. So you can look at apps like MyRadar Pro and turn on weather or turn on winds, and you can see the winds flowing across where you're at. And then you can go to like Primos Hunting and it has an app to where it shows the winds blowing and the velocity across where you're at. So there's a lot of different apps already out there that kind of show wind. Basically all they're doing is pulling up winds off the airports. And so that's where they're gathering wind. But if we had a micro uh, wind reader, like a drone that I could send out that would quickly read wind based off the topography. So now I'm doing geospatial wind calls. Yeah. Uh, and now since I know it's reading 12 here, but as it runs down there over that little hill, it's picking 15. And as it comes back across the valley, it says 10. Now when I know it picks up to 14, I know that's 17 and I know that's 12. And now when I drop a pin, it's giving me my wind call based off topography readings. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's kind of next level. And then we can place the drones at the height of the max sword effect yeah, and then actually call real-time winds yeah. where the bullet's at. So I think it's next generation. I think it's coming. Uh, uh, the government will, will probably get, will do something with it next year.
So we're already heading down that road. We've already got some drones and playing with it and see what we can do. And uh, obviously, I, I would love to see, uh, it'd probably be military for a while just because the cost of some of it. Uh, I, would, I would love it. My deal is I want to see people enjoy hunting. I never want to say, well, I wouldn't give it to, to hunters because, you know, the only reason I wouldn't want hunters to have it is I don't want to walk into the woods and have 15 drones above me yeah. from all the other guys out hunting. Yeah. So I think we've had at least one case I can remember of one getting shot down in, over a regional park. The same thing. Yeah. They just have, they're not meant to be there anyway, but yeah, somebody yeah. just yeah. disturbing the peace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if it's your own private property and you want to use one and it has that capability, that's all fine. You're yeah. making a good ethical kill, but you can't destroy somebody else's uh, silence yeah. by you run your drone around all the time because I'd probably shoot it down too. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right, so guys who want to uh, grab a copy of your DVD, catch up more of what you're doing, where do they go to? What do they check out? Uh, the, the DVDs are still current. Uh, the last one, Long Range Made Easy, uh, me and Brian Litz, I brought him in. We, it was basically something I wanted to sit down as far as a Kessel class, teach people really how to use yeah. it properly. And uh, we, we kind of covered the science behind uh, the, the ballistics, using the Kessel really as a medium to do that. So the Kessel is a, a great handheld weather meter, but there's a lot of handheld weather meters. Yeah. Uh, it, it's applied ballistics in it that makes it what it is. Uh, as far as, you know, it's very accurate. It's very fast uh, once you learn it, and you can learn tons about ballistics by just sitting in the living room playing with it. You don't have to be out on the range. Uh, see what, like you said, like even with the WES systems, you know, sitting there playing with that as well. Uh, but it's a great tool. Uh, I think that kind of information is probably the most important. You know, a lot of people get wrapped around uh, a lot of other stuff uh, that, that, in my opinion, is not needed. But the more knowledge you have, uh, it's you know what you should be doing and you shouldn't be doing. So uh, gaining more knowledge sometimes is not going to shooting schools. Gaining knowledge is gaining knowledge. So. Uh, it, it, a lot, I get asked this all the time. They say, you know, what books should I read? I'm like, go go get Brian's books. Yep. Uh, they're science-based, but they're new. So a lot of times we look at old shooting books. You know, there's one, Brian Enos wrote a book called uh, Beyond Fundamentals, uh, yep. Practical Shooting. So it's a great book for the mental side of shooting. Now, he was a pistol shooter, shot with Rob Latham uh, back in the early 80s. They kind of developed the way that we shoot pistols today. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was he then went into the mental side of human performance stuff, and I used to teach, teach mental shooting seminars in Vegas, and it, it was kind of the same thing. I didn't know about his work, but when I found out about it, he immediately went and bought the book, and now that's one of the first books I tell people to read. It's fantastic. Uh, and then reading Brian's with some problems that, you know, too many people, and, and not for the bad reason, but too many people will buy, like, five different books from every you know author and go out and read it and you got to know what's not correct you know so they get they go well I don't know what's right I read this book and he said this and I read this book and he said that and, and that's that's where the problem starts because it's like well I kind of understand this I kind of want to do more like this guy says but I can tell you why it's wrong and it doesn't work just because you don't understand it makes it right and so and then other guys they jump in and they go well well, you don't need any of that. You just need data books and you need these range cards and blah, blah, blah. And he's still dealing with the 1970s. And, and you know, there's whole shooting schools based on how to build data books, you know, and, and work off range cards. And, and I'm like, that's, 
it's fun, but that's all 1970, you know, and, and we can we can give the shooters a high level of success very quickly, uh, which in my world is great because if I can save you time and money and make it more enjoyable and you hit more of the targets, it makes our sport grow. Yeah. And the more of us we have, the better. Yeah. So now we have a, a larger voting base, uh, more ranges open up, more hunting opens up, uh, more competitions. Uh, because we're buying more, prices go down. It's all good for, I, I, won't, I, I never want to, to make anybody think, oh, well, I can't get into long range uh, shooting because there's so much I have to do to understand it. It'd take 10 years. I'm like, no, it'd take five days. Come see me. This is easy. It's approachable. I, yeah, it's very approachable with the right information. Well, that's what I'm saying to people now as well, is it's not necessarily within competition, within the shooting realm, it's, it's like, I'm not, that's it, not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is get people who want to take up a new sport. Yeah. Instead of, say, taking up golf or yeah. racing cars, they decide to get into shooting, yep. long-range shooting. Now they may then go off to hunting, they may go do other things, but it's just, it's just another thing people can get involved in. And if it's more people's recreation, then like you say, it's Absolutely. stronger for all of us. Yeah, it, it's, it's a huge benefit and I always hated- And it's a positive way of yeah. pushing it. Oh yeah, and, and I always hated when people would say, you know, oh well, you know, you, you have to be military to, to know how to do this or to be good at it. And, and that's absolutely incorrect. I mean, my son is, very good at it and him just like me was never in the military and so he's very good he's not a stopper and you know the the stopping portion comes or what makes you a stopper is not actually pulling the trigger uh it's everything else that they do all the camera work getting into position doing everything else which is a lot uh but the actual pulling the trigger i would hope my wife could lay down and do you know a good job pulling the trigger or you know i, I took uh, my, my best friend's daughter out when she was like 13 and she shot a deer at 700 and some i think 780 meters out and first round hit and so i mean i think she's well and then his his youngest daughter i think she was uh i think she was 11 the first time i took her out but again first round hit no problem you know and this is we're shooting what people consider long range. It's yeah. not long range to us, but it's, yeah. you know, uh, distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that distance shots that, you know, little girls are taking and shooting my 300 Norma, that's a big heavy truck axle of a barrel. So it, it weighs a ton, so it doesn't even recoil. So I go, how'd that feel? Cause the, the little girl I took out hunting this year, she's a tiny thing. And she shot and I said, how'd it feel? And she said, what? Yeah. <laughs> I said, all right, we're good. <laughs> So, but I'm, you know, the big deal is uh, learn all you can learn, but, but always ask yourself why. Don't, ne don't, even with my stuff, never read it and go, okay, that's, that's good, that's gospel. Even if you read my stuff, if you figure out the why of what I'm saying and if it's actually real or not, then you have knowledge. But if you just read something and gain information, that's not knowledge. So once you actually define why it's real or why it's wrong, because you're going to get into a lot of books and get a lot of probably different, uh, cassette or DVDs from, from other places that you may go, ah, you know, even like maybe let's say the uh, Magpul videos, there may be something I taught in there that I'm ashamed of that I even taught back then because we're always evolving. So somebody may look at some of my stuff and go like, yeah, I really don't like that as much as this way of doing it. And then I'd be like, yeah, I agree with you. That, that was like, it seems 15 years ago that we did that DVD. I hope I've grown since then. So, you know, we're always trying to continually grow, but I think it's smart that guys, when they say, hey, this is good, I like this, test it, know why. 
put it against the WES program, try to figure it out, try to figure out does it work all the time or some of the time. It, it's not wrong if it only works some of the time, just use it some of the time. Yeah. So it, it, it's like a Pythagorean theorem and high angle and Rifleman's rule and improved Rifleman's rule. They're horrible. They don't work, but they work awesome when it's short range, yeah. but they don't work at all in real long range. So I was in Switzerland this year shooting uh, high angle uh, with, with the KSK and it was, you know, you sit there and you're doing the Rifleman drill and it's just like, this doesn't work at all, you know, but I have my own formulas, but the Kestrel's perfect for it. I mean, we're sitting there shooting 30 degrees at 1200 meters and not having any problem. So we didn't have any problem that day hitting any target other than wind. So it, which is crazy wild. So me and the uh, uh, head instructor for that area, we got put in by helicopter and then they had uh, some jet went down or it's a prop jet went down the head to go find him so we lost the helicopters and so everybody else had to walk up so me and the instructor sat there on the hill and we got to compare notes and we both agree high angle simple angle's nothing so it, it's it's easy once you determine what angle it is and most time it's a lot less than you thought it was uh the, the math to correct it is easy it's it's in the kestrel it's there it works perfect nobody's had a problem so i've got high angle schools we go to switzerland for high angle and everything, I've never had a group that said, oh yeah, this isn't working. And you know, I hear this stupid comment that people say, uh, yeah, it works at Todd's, but it doesn't work anywhere else. I wish I was that smart to work something, make something only work mathematically at my house, but math doesn't work anywhere else in the world. It's a special range. Yeah, 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 yeah. I use special math, Todd you math that you, only you works. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a stupid comment, but it happens. Yeah. So, but it, it's, you know, little stuff like that. But, understand why something works and why it doesn't work. So a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, most of the world doesn't get to do high angle shooting. And then since they don't do it, they just read about it. And when they read about it, they go out and try to do what, you know, like the Rifleman's rule where you may take a cosine of distance. So if you're shooting 800 meters at 60 degrees, that's 400 meters is what you would shoot. You're gonna miss by a meal. Mm -hmm. So know why, Com compare that to the Kestrel. The Kestrel's on. I mean, yeah. when I say the Kestrel, the applied ballistics is on. Yeah. So it's perfect. We've shot at the high angle. We know it works. So when something doesn't compare, find out why. It may be something that you put value in that's actually incorrect. And unfortunately, that's the way a lot of the uh, formulas that we use in the military, uh, they were incorrect. And so we started going through the whole manual, going like, read something. And I tell my instructors, never teach anything unless you've actually put it to the test. So, you know, which makes them actually have to just go out and yep. shoot it. So if they, if they do it and it works, says, hey, so, or that's great, but like I said, 800 meters, 60 degree angle, you're gonna miss by a mil, but 400, the Rifleman's rule would be 200, and you're gonna hit perfect inside a 10th of a mil. Know where it works and know where it doesn't work. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with the Rifleman's rule at the ranges that it works, but you gotta know and find out where it doesn't work. And so you have to do the math and, and, and kind of figure that out. Cool. So, yeah, other than that, uh, like I said, book till 2020 still, running 100 miles an hour. So next year, where I'm trying to trying to book five weeks in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, one, so I can go back down, maybe do some hunting on the South Island, because uh, we love it down here. But be back in probably two weeks, if not three weeks in Australia, uh, and then two weeks over here. And so that, ugh. Maybe I need six weeks if I want to get a week off. So, but yeah, and I think, you know, there's, we, we get a lot of interest from guys that call me from down here, send yeah. emails that, that want to do a shooting school. Uh, the, the law enforcement, they want to do stuff with us. Obviously the guys that I'm working with this week 
and then the the hunting you know we're getting more and more and it's it's just it's just time i don't think it'd be hard uh to fill up classes it's never about that it's just the time no. you yeah. can find the time we can get yeah. people in front of you yeah well I mean, we we may end up trying to do something like that trying to set up a class with y'all and we're maybe Get, get somewhere uh, where we can set up a class. Uh, I don't know what South Island is usually harder to get to and to get everybody down there, but, but we can. It's all day for everybody. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome, Todd. Yep, Thanks it's been fun. Much. Yep, you bet. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Trigonometry Podcast. Please make sure you visit our site at precisionshooter.info where you'll find show notes, additional links, and a pile of extra information, including competitions and updates on events near you. While you're there, pop over to our Facebook and Instagram pages, where you'll see regular updates on the goings-on in the precision shooting community in New Zealand. The way that this show grows is through people like you, so please, share on Facebook, and if you know someone who's into shooting and may be interested in checking this out, flick them over a link and if you're listening to this through a podcast aggregator or some form of app make sure you leave us a review it really makes a difference thanks again to the gear locker and all our additional supporters and most importantly thank you the listener without you guys none of this could happen talk soon but for now go have a shoot